This show is supported by three awesome Bitcoin companies. The first is Shift Crypto. They make the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin-only hardware wallet. If you're new to Bitcoin and you're looking for a way to take self-custody of your Bitcoin, which you absolutely should be doing, this is a very good option. It's very easy to set up. It's very easy to use. Very slick interface. A great option to get you started on your self-custody journey. Visit shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapidfire to learn more about the product and get 5% off. Next up is the Bitcoin 2022 conference. The 2021 conference was amazing. One of the best experiences of my life. And it's going down again in Miami, April 6th to the 9th. But this time, instead of in Wynwood and a 13,000 person capacity, it's happening on Miami Beach and a 35,000 person capacity. I can't even begin to imagine how amazing it's going to be. There's always a ton of peripheral events and parties and extra stuff going on around the conference. And you get to meet so many awesome people at the conference itself. It really is tremendous. If you've never been to a Bitcoin conference before, this is the one to go to. So check out their website and at checkout, use the code RAPIDFIRE and get 10% off. And finally, the awesome people at bullbitcoin.com. If you're looking to buy Bitcoin in Canada, this is an amazing option. Have a look into them. They are a privacy-focused, non-custodial exchange, which means you buy Bitcoin through them, and then the Bitcoin goes directly to your own custody solution, which, in my opinion, is the most secure way to purchase Bitcoin. Also soon, they'll be offering a white glove service for international clients. So for people that may seem that the setting up their own custody solution is a little bit daunting, they'll be there to hold your hand to get you set up in the best way possible. So keep track of their website for updates on when those services will be available. Mike, welcome back. It's good to see you, man. Happy to be here. You're not wearing the uh, the Cyber Hornet shirt like our our first encounter. No, I I thought about it, but uh, you can't do the same thing twice. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I can't believe it's been a year since we last spoke. Uh, Bitcoin time always feels like it's like a five x or ten x of of real time. I, I don't know why that is, but maybe one of the reasons is so much happens and so much gets condensed into a certain amount of time. And the last year when we first spoke, you know, you had just announced the MicroStrategy purchase and kind of come onto the scene and we're doing the rounds on the mainstream media and a bunch of podcasts. And it's been a pretty damn eventful year for you. So uh, what was what was the date? It was uh, late November. I, I think it was first week in November. Okay, it was November. Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> when we spoke, um, we had done the initial purchase and then we'd finished the Dutch auction. And so I guess we'd done a second purchase, but it, we still hadn't gotten around to any of the debt or other equity issuances. So I guess it was, I'm feeling nostalgic, John. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, nostalgic for like $18,000 Bitcoin. Yeah, aren't we all? I'm wishing I could go back and get some more of the $18,000 Bitcoin. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I wish I could borrow some Bitcoin. Or I wish I could borrow some money at the rates you've been getting and buy some Bitcoin with it. You've been scooping it all up. I saw someone put a statistic out uh, a couple of days ago. I'm not sure if it's correct, but since you started buying, I think you've MicroStrategy has bought 23% of the new issuance. Is that, does that sound correct? Yeah, it sounds correct. I think... Um, <laughs> I want all the Bitcoin, John. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we noticed, Mike. We noticed. Um, I, no, actually being more serious, um, 
the most important point is when did you ever hear of a company uh, issuing equity to buy gold? Or when did you ever hear of a, of a company issuing debt to buy gold? And, what, and I think the thing that just is uh, most amazing about Bitcoin is Bitcoin is a good enough asset. I mean, it's obviously it's a perfected asset that you can finance it. So in essence, we've issued equity to buy Bitcoin We've issued uh, convertible debt to buy Bitcoin. We've issued uh, junk bonds to buy Bitcoin. Um, and uh, we've used cash flows to buy Bitcoin. Anybody can use cash flows to buy anything they want. I mean, if, you, if you've got cash flows and you want to invest in ice cream trucks or sawdust or lumber or whatever you think is interesting, you can do that. But, but I think what separates high quality assets from low quality assets is that you can go to the public markets <clears throat> and you can raise capital to buy the asset. And that's really probably the most interesting story in the last 12 months, because um, if we were unique, maybe you would say it's an oddity, but we're not unique. By the end of the year, there'll be something like 20 publicly traded Bitcoin miners. And all the Bitcoin miners are raising equity and many of them are raising credit lines. Last week, Grid announced a, they had a $525 million credit line, and then they announced a SPAC merger to raise another $245 million in equity. And um, so that just this parade of companies coming public that are raising equity and debt with the intent of you know, I view it as the intent of buying Bitcoin because they're either going to buy Bitcoin with it or they're going to buy Bitcoin mining rigs and pay their expenses so they can keep Bitcoin. So they're, they're covering their operating expenses or they're covering their capital costs so, cost so they can keep the Bitcoin. Mm. And that's, uh, that's only possible because Bitcoin's superior. Like you, you didn't see 24 companies coming public as gold miners, you know, raising debt and equity and keeping their gold, right? How, yeah. how many gold hodlers are there? There's not one, right? There, there's not a single company in the world that mines gold so they can store it on their balance sheet. And I, I think yeah. that we pioneered that in a way, but I'm really delighted to see uh, the growth and the vitality and the explosion of the Bitcoin mining industry, because I think that, you know, one, two, three data points is interesting, but 20 data points, 20 data points is an avalanche. It's not yeah. a line anymore. Yeah. And that's, I've enjoyed that devastating blow that you've levied against the, the gold bugs about that very fact that gold miners aren't doing everything they possibly can to retain their gold. They're doing everything they possibly can to sell it, which, you know, speaks volumes about how they perceive the value of the asset. But man, I got to think that you, you must not be able to believe your luck. And I, I use that term with all respect. I know you've built a, a great business over the course of the last 20, 30 years, but that we live in a time where the cost of capital is so perverted. I mean, yes, take advantage of it all you will, but we all know we live in an environment where the, the cost of capital is artificially low from all the intervention for the last several decades. And here you are with an opportunity to avail of that 
artificially cheap capital and put it into the best form of capital that's ever existed. And then you're and the re, and, and you're a perfect example of it. You're buying it up like you're scooping it up like Skittles, right? You got yeah, you got to appreciate how absurd <clears throat> but amazing that situation is for especially for people in your position. I'm lucky. You know, sometimes yeah. you're lucky. I, 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 I wouldn't apologize that uh, I've been lucky. I've been lucky in a lot of things in life, I think, if I look back. Um, you know, when I graduated from, uh, uh, from MIT, I, I went on a full tuition scholarship and the Air Force paid for it. And uh, I was on the hook uh, to be uh, a pilot for a decade after I left. So, and I thought that's what I wanted. That's what I desperately wanted. And, and um, there was no way I'm getting out of it. And, and the fallback would be, if you're not a pilot, you're gonna be an engineer for five years in the Air Force. And if you want, and, and freshman, software, more and junior year at MIT, if you had decided you didn't wanna be in the military and it wasn't your thing, your alternative was go to jail. You know, we used to sit around and say, well, you know, like, do you get thrown in the brig? Yes, you get court-martialed. It's like, it's not an optional thing, whether you're going to go or not go. So I couldn't afford to go to school. I couldn't afford to go to MIT. Like, I would have, I, I would have, uh, I, I drained 200 years of my family's life savings in the first four weeks in college, right? So, but, and this is not an uncommon challenge, right? everybody struggles with this issue of how do you get an education and you know and how do you pay for it it was never cheap it was expensive then it's more expensive now so my out was uh get uh, get a scholarship with the air force go to mit so i got the scholarship great go to mit got a great education government paid for it all my uh my senior year second semester my final physical, flight physical, they misdiagnosed me with a heart murmur I didn't have. That's a fluke. That disqualifies me from uh, flying jets. So now my 10-year obligation goes to five-year obligation in one week. The Amer America wins the Cold War. Reagan launched this massive Star Wars initiative, outspent the Russians, and the Soviets threw in the towel. And by 87... Uh, we had decided we'd won and Congress cut the budget for the military in half or they, they cut the allocations and the headcount. So all of a sudden in this one year, in the spring of 1987, I can't be a pilot and, and uh, the Air Force and the Army and the Navy, they don't want all their ROTC cadets. And so one day, a week or two weeks after I'm not going to be a pilot, I'm dejected. The commandant walks in the office and says, oh, by the way, if you want to go in the Air Force Reserve or National Guard, you can do that. You don't have to pay back the money to the Air Force and you can go ahead and become a civilian. And of course, the, the salary of your civilian is triple what the salary would be if I went into the Air Force. I still would have done it if I could have flied, right? flown because uh, you know everybody wants to be top gun. You know, I had, I had the plan, you know, pilot, fighter, pilot, test pilot, astronaut, mission to Mars, design spaceships. That was the plan. You got to have a plan when you're young. So I had a plan. My plan got dashed by a medical fluke. 
and then I'm still on the hook to, to fly a desk in the Air Force. And it got, and I get out of that obligation with a geopolitical fluke. I guess I got a lot of candle to Ronald Reagan. God bless him. What a great president. <laughs> what an amazing president. So here I am. I got one plan and in two weeks, the plan changes and all of a sudden I find myself a civilian. And even then I would have gone to get a PhD. I never would have done what I did, uh, except for the fact that I missed all the financial aid cycles. I could get into a PhD program, but I couldn't get, I couldn't pay for it. So third piece of luck, it's just a random piece of circumstance. I end up working. I'm like, I'm just going to go take a job for two years or take a job for a year. And I'm going to apply for financial aid and come back and get PhD. You know, I wanted to get a PhD in politics, philosophy, and economics, you know, like we all love that in Bitcoin philosophy, politics, economics. So I wanted to do that and I couldn't afford it. So I figured I'd just go work for a year. Well, I got there and, uh, Six months after I got to the job, the company imploded. You know, the, the guy I was working for was a genius, but he couldn't delegate anything. And so there were like 10 or 12 people in the company and he insisted on controlling everything. And, and uh, at some point he burned himself out. And one day he just quit. The company imploded. And now I'm like six months into my civilian life, thinking about going back to college but you know everything kind of blows up. So I get another job at DuPont and I work for DuPont for 18 months. So I finally get two years out. Now I got the, I got the financial aid. I'm gonna go, go back and get the PhD. And um, my sponsor there, the guys working for desperately wanted me to finish this computer simulation and it was worth a billion dollars to them. And they offered me anything to finish it. And the only th- I was like, okay, well just finance my company, make me CEO and uh, yeah, the odds of a 24 year old kid having a, a person that the odds of a person 24 years old on the critical path to a billion or a billion and a half dollars of capital, very low. I just happened to be the right place, the right time. And, and there was through no fault of my own, right? I was catapulted by one, two, three, four happenstance, random things, right? Mm. A wrong diagnosis, the end of the Cold War. You know, and a first ball, a first company that blows itself up. And then the fourth circumstance, a random, a random computer model for a billion. And and that launched MicroStrategy. And I found myself in business. So it's, well, I I would characterize that as lucky. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, combination, obviously. But and then we wind up in a circumstance in March 2020 where you, or around that time where you start to see what Bitcoin really is and you start to understand the potential and the implications. And then you go on this rampage of going down the rabbit hole, putting your company's balance sheet on it. And then over the last year, you know, I know, uh, I know you've been talking to a lot of people, other boards, billionaires, heads of state, all that kind of stuff. And you are the one in that situation. I mean, you talk about the odds of a 24 year old being critical path of a billion dollar enterprise. I mean, what are the odds of that same 24-year-old being, uh, you know, evangelizing to the world's richest and most powerful people about a change that's going to disrupt damn near everything? I mean, how do you reflect on that? You don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. Like if, 
if you'd given me what I wanted, right? I mean, I would be a failed musician right now, probably. <laughs> like, or, you know, or, or the like. And so, you know, the, the beginning of my career is literally like falling off a truck, rolling down a hill and hitting your head on a pot of gold. And, and I suppose this is like the, I don't know if it's the end of my career, but 30 years later, you know, the, the monetary supplies may be expanding at 7% a year from 2010 to 2020. And I'm oblivious really to, I'm not really registering Bitcoin and I'm not really paying attention. If you'd asked me what the inflation rate was in 2012 or 13 or 15 or 19, or even January, 2020, I would have said, what, what 2%? I would have said 2%, uh, you know, and so, it took it took a, a a trauma, right? And March was a trauma, right? It, it took a, a a grotesque distortion of the world economy, which I found to be horrifying. <laughs> it took a horrifying trauma in order to wake me up, and uh, following March, right? That sent me down this rabbit hole where I discovered, you know, Saifedean's Bitcoin standard. And I, I discovered, you know, everything, right? Everything about digital assets. And I started, uh, that, that caused me to, to think more deeply about the theory of money, the theory of property, the theory of investment, the political theory, economic theory. And I did, I did something which I think most people still haven't done yet. I mean, most of the mainstream, I think most of the mainstream investors, they've thought a lot about digital transformation of products. A lot of, a lot of focus. If you went back a decade, people were kind of oblivious to digital music, digital books, digital cameras, digital, whatever. And that's when, if you jumped on the mobile wave and you invested in Amazon and Apple and Facebook and the like, you would have done well or Google, but by 2020, the mainstream media had kind of, and the mainstream investor had figured out digital transformation of products. And yeah, you know, and, and you could point your finger towards some examples, like when Warren Buffett buys Apple stock, that's an indicator, right? That, you know, when Carl Icahn and Warren Buffett both bought Apple stock, you could see we're kind of crossed the chasm there on all those digital transformations. But in March of 2020, I think we saw the explosion or the, the, the catalytic event that, that accelerated the, and, and demarcated the digital transformation of property, money, and energy. And I think that those ideas, uh, the, the digital transformation of assets, the digital transformation of energy, the digital transformation of property. I think those are all just so kind of profound and esoteric that none of the mainstream investors have yet grasped them. Yeah, 2%, 3% have, and the majority have not. And I feel like they're kind of back to where they were in 2008, trying to figure out the iPhone or the implication of Google or Facebook or something. And it's like another decade for people to get this idea that you know, a digital hotel is better than a 
hotel or digital energy is better than analog energy and 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 such can such a thing even exist right and they you know like they can't even conceive it existing so so i i you know what does it take for you to to uh see the light on that and i think I think uh, there's a small group of, you know, the Bitcoin OGs, right? Somehow they're sensitive to this. You need some kind of earth shattering event revelation. and everybody gets it, some revelation, right? Uh, on the road to Damascus, there's a revelation, but everybody, everybody travels that road at a different point in their life. And some people never travel it, mm. right? There's some people that uh, for whatever reason, they, they never really have that, uh, that recognition or that that transformational event but um in march of 2020 if we were to if we were to look at that month and we say what happened well i think that's the month where the inflation rate tripled and i think if you can imagine seven percent is two percent but it's hard to imagine that 21 percent is two percent and if it's not two percent then uh it's material so I think that, uh, that that was a shock in March. And I think the K-shaped recovery was proof. When I, when I watched CNBC and I saw people talking about how, well, you know, cruise lines are shut down, hotels are shut down, theme parks are shut down, airlines are shut down, movie theaters are shut down, <clears throat> Disney stock hits an all-time high, and somebody goes on television and says, well, you know, we're valuing Disney stock based upon 2024 revenue multiples of Disney Plus. And I thought, Disney owns cruise lines, theme parks, theatrical releases, retail. They're all shut down and they just launched a streaming service and someone has just decided to value the company not based upon this year, not based on 5% of this year's number, but based upon not next year's number, not the following year's number, but four years from now, we're going to value this company based upon one of 20 lines of business, which is currently just being incubated. And it's all with a straight face. Everybody's buying it. Mm. The stock's hitting an all time high. I'm scratching my head <clears throat> and I start saying, well, what, why is this? And, and that's an example of monetizing an equity where you, you bet, what are you doing? I'm basically just pouring a bunch of money uh, into the economy and it has to find a home. So let's just monetize the brand. We like Disney. We might as well just go ahead and double the stock price in Disney. Well, the fundamentals, well, if we just go out four years and focus upon the uh, upon the speculation of five percent of the company four years from now, it doesn't seem very risky now, does it? Right at that that point, right? That what do you have shattered? Right, you've shattered all your illusions about bonds because interest rates pegged to zero. You've shattered and they're, they're pegged to zero forever, right? And there's nothing rational, fair, equitable, normal about 30 year money. Like what's the 30 year rate today at 170 basis points for the government bond. This is today, like by and by the interest rates will go up. Oh, well, there's no inflation. 
Okay, well, I guess there's 5% inflation, but it's transferred. Well, I guess there's 6% inflation is not transitory. And the interest rates went down. Why are they going to? Well, the Federal Reserve is going to raise the interest rates now to fight the inflation. So I guess we don't have to be concerned about, but it's, it's so odd, right? The, the logic that if you thought that um, the world was composed of stuff you understood, right? We just, we stack up all the things in the world you think you believe and you understand, and we smash them one at a time. So the hundred trillion dollars worth of bonds are, you know, and, and sovereign debt that's smashed when the interest rates pegged to zero and when the 30 year yield is, you know, the 30 year swap rate in the US is 165 basis points, but the 30 year swap rate in Europe, like 30 year European money is like 25 basis points. So for one quarter of 1%, you could borrow money for the rest of your life in the Euro. Okay, it's been pegged, it's been sitting on the floor, right? So if interest rates, the value of time, the value of your time is driven to zero. We've declared war on time. There's a war on time, right? Okay. But there's um, also, just to interject here for a sec, there's also a war on the people that can't access that capital. So one of the questions you know, that I think is relevant today is how sustainable is a system that continues to so, uh, so greatly favor the few that can access that? Because what all this represents is ultimately a mispricing and misallocation of capital. And that means capital destruction. And that means more and more people that can't access that cheap capital are underserved. They have a harder and harder time of getting by. And socially speaking, at a certain point, that becomes unsustainable. And, you know, we're in a world today where, as you say, all these things you're saying about bonds and the cost of capital and how it's available is completely absurd. And so what is the breaking point because i get the strategy of of making hay while the sun shines right like just getting while the getting is good especially if you can and if you're a company a state a bitcoiner or whoever that can access that cheap capital i mean you're incentivized to do so it'd be stupid not to but there's a lot of people that can't and i you know part of the conversation that permeates around this space a lot these days is well how far can the abuse or the underserving of of that people that are on the the bottom part of that k how long, how sustainable is it to keep effectively robbing them, you know, disservicing them? I don't have a crystal ball as to what happens in the future. The world is a very complicated place. And as we've talked about, right? Look, ch chess has got 64 coordinates and you've got like one, two, three, four, five, six pieces, six pieces, 64 coordinates, like 12 rules and 10 to the 120 different, 10 to the 120th Potential power mm. outcomes, right? And that's chess. Now, how many outcomes are there in the world? Like how, how much more complicated? Your dinner table and the way you shuffle food on the table is <clears throat> orders and orders of magnitude more complicated than chess. So I think what you're seeing here, John, is is you're seeing a dynamic change everywhere, right? So if you want to look in the Western world, well, people are stampeding the crypto economy. You could argue that there's cheap capital in the crypto world, right? If you look at the velocity of money and the leverage on the velocity of money, by the time you get into all these crypto exchanges, you know, if you're trading a dog coin with 20 to one leverage cross collateralized and a DeFi token, right? What is that, right? 
There's a lot of velocity. I mean, there's I a lot of velocity. It's an attempt to balance the scales to some degree, right? It's an attempt to get a piece of that action, even though it's highly, highly, you know, risky. Every action causes, catalyzes a reaction, right? So, so the story is not just taking place at the institutional level. Like every, you have a podcast, right? Probably every single podcast, someone's got a different story, right? And and the story, if you live in Turkey right now, is a very different story than if you live in California, right? But, but there's a story of people that live in California that decided to move to Miami, and, and they've got their own story. And there's a story of people that were invested in 401ks and conservative bond funds, and they rolled into, into Bitcoin, or they rolled into equities or ETFs or meme stocks. Right there's the GameStop story. There's the meme stock story. There's there's this the SPAC story. You know uh, the story. There's the story in Lebanon. We looked at that story, right? If you're in Lebanon, well, what's the reaction? People standing outside a bank throwing rocks at the building, right? What's the story in Turkey? Well, not quite that yet, but what'll happen there? There's the story in Afghanistan, right? And and that's an interesting story. Now there's very interesting stories in New Zealand and Australia right now. And, and if you follow them, you know what you can follow, right? That's, that's very different than the story for someone living in Miami Beach or in Austin, Texas, mm -hmm. right? And, and uh, the story, uh, right, it manifests itself differently. Like we're, we sit in the US and we whine about the fact that we don't have a spot ETF in, for Bitcoin. They have a spot ETF for Bitcoin rolling out in, you know, Australia or Singapore or Canada. On the other hand, there's certain stuff in Canada that they don't have that uh, they wish they had that we have in Miami Beach, right? So, there's a, if you're an individual, you're stampeding into new things, right? You're discovering new things, right? What what do you discover? You might have studied uh, discovered YouTube. You've discovered free education. You've discovered you can learn more on, on, uh, online maybe than you can learn in a bricks and mortar institution. Um, a lot of people discovered the Sailor Academy last year. MicroStrategy discovered Zoom. We're using it right now, right? A lot of people discovering things, right? And you know, if you look at it uh, cynically, if you want to be critical, right? If you want to be pessimistic, right? You can focus on all the things you lost. There's a lot like, a, like there's a lot of stuff we lost, right? There's a lot of stuff that isn't working the way it used to work, right? I, I, I don't go to so many restaurants. I don't go to so many concerts. I don't go out to so many public places, right? It's a lot of things I don't care to do, right? There, you know, to a certain extent with quarantines, it's like you want to go take a trip to the Caribbean every two days. Every time you go to New Island, you're getting a COVID test and and if you run in the, if you're lucky, you just get hit with a COVID test. If you're unlucky, you get hit with a 15 day quarantine. And so you get to show up at your vacation resort and sit quarantined in your hotel or wherever you're going for 15 days. Well, with stuff like that, you're like, okay, I guess it's not really worth the trouble to do that anymore, right? Like they're just, what's the point of taking a vacation, you know, if on the receiving end of the vacation, you know, you, there's no vacation there. So there's a lot of stuff like that you lost, but on the other hand, there's other stuff that uh, got accelerated by a decade, right? Like Zoom, 
and streaming everything. And, um, and uh, maybe you discovered new people and met new people and discovered new platforms and the like. So uh, I think uh, there's a lot of individuals that are transforming and there's a lot of societies that are transforming right now. And, and uh, where will it end? Well, tons of money have flo have, has flooded out of the conventional systems and it's flooded into the crypto economy. Uh, do you like that? Do you not like that? It's actually, like it or not, it's actually catalyzing the growth of Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin was a monetary fire, it was being fed with 7% inflation in, uh, in the Western world, and it was being fed with 14% inflation, probably in the developing world for about a decade. <clears throat> now it's being fed with somewhere in the range of 15 to 20% or 25% inflation in the developing world. And it's being fed with 50% inflation in the, sorry, 25% inflation in, in, in the Western world, in the US and Western Europe, and probably 50% in an Argentina or Turkey or a developing world. Okay, well, do you like Bitcoin, right? Do you wanna feed the fire? Fire's been fed, right? So, so on one hand, uh, what are the universal goods? I mean, the truth is, I, I can think of three things that are actually good for the civilization: um, digital meetings, digital currency, digital property. All three of those things, uh, much of the world was oblivious to or resistant to before March of 2020. And now what you see is uh, digital meetings and, and, and digital engagement like Zoom, Teams and Skype exploded by orders of magnitude. Zoom went from 10 million users to uh, 500 million, a billion, right? It exploded and it made possible, it makes possible for you know me to have a fireside chat with you in my study and maybe a hundred thousand people join the two of us. And you know, John, in February of 2020, this was never going to happen. Never. Mm. You know, and it, it, by the way, if you worked for me in February of 2020, let, let's make it easier. Let's make it December of 2019. If you worked for me and you said, Mike, I just want to work from home. <laughs> I fired people before the lockdowns that wanted to work from home several, many, right? This was, right, Geka Chad was not very, <laughs> not very he was not very accommodating of, uh, of the digital transformation. But you know- <clears throat> My, how the tables in, have turned. In December of uh, 2019, we tried to have a meeting on WebEx and I'd start talking and the sound would cut out, you know? And so nothing worked, you know, in, in one day, uh, the, the first day of the lockdowns, I don't know, I think it was like a Monday, no one comes in the office. At 9 a.m. in the morning, I tried to use, you know, digital conferencing technology one, the sound fails, nothing works. I scream in frustration. By noon, 
I try to convene a management meeting of my 12 top executives to talk about the fact that, you know, the world's turned upside down, right? And we have global crisis and how are we going to deal with this? And uh, eight of the 12 of them can speak and the other four, their mouth is moving and there's no sound coming out of the channel. <clears throat> Giga Chad has another hissy fit, right? You know, you, I'm not easy to work for sometimes. <laughs> if stuff doesn't work right, right, I know I'm kind and gentle on these podcasts, right? But, <laughs> you know, if stuff's not working right, like I'm cracking the whip. So, so everybody starts scampering because the CEO is not happy. By two in the afternoon, the IT people are saying, well, you know, we have this thing called Zoom and, and it's been well spoken of, but I'm like, what is Zoom? I never heard of it in my life. I finally have an effective conference at two o'clock in the afternoon after two failed technologies. And by 5 p.m., we've adopted this as the corporate standard. And they've all, my team's got instructions to develop an education course and make it mandatory and roll it out to everybody in the company within the week. Like, well, it's going to cost money. It's like, okay, well, $250,000 got spent with about 15 seconds, not even 15 seconds of contemplation, John. Hmm. Like I spent $250,000 in about one second and the product cycle took six hours. And for a decade, we were trying to make digital meetings work. So 10 years condensed down to six hours in a crisis. And um, though I got to say the world's a better place for that, right? No, I, I'm totally unhappy about all the things that, uh, that we don't have, mm. but, but I believe in being cheerful and constructive because there's no point inventing toxicity or criticism or cynicism because no amount of toxicity is going to turn the clock back to the way the world was. Yeah. It, you know, you don't have that option. You have the option to constructively, cheerfully, thoughtfully move forward. And at the point that you become consumed with your obsession over what you lost, right? Uh, you, uh, you know, you kind of break sailor's law. Here's sailor's law expressed in two different forms. First form, things can always get worse. Things can always get worse. However bad you think it is, you know, it's like you're really angry because someone just said something or did something to you and you just totally lose it and you turn around and you step off the curb and you get slammed into a truck. And as the truck is rolling over your sternum and the life is crushing out of you, it occurs to you that whatever you were angry about wasn't that important. It really wasn't. You know, those who the gods would destroy, they first make mad. And so a lot of times people, they, they start feeling sorry for themselves or they feel indignant or they're angry. And when you get angry, you, met, you miss a risk right? You're going to, you're going to walk into oncoming traffic and that's the end of you. And you were angry about someone charging you 5% interest instead of five and a half percent interest, or you were angry that the stock traded down, or you were angry because someone said something to you on Twitter. It's like, well, you could have just not been, but you got distracted and you blew yourself up. So that's the, that's the, uh, the, 
the yin side of that. The yang side of that is it's never too late to make things better. However bad you've screwed things up in your personal life and your business life and in, in your society and your corporation, whatever it is you think is messed up, it's never too late to make it better. Stop, right? And, and chaos is opportunity, right? That's the classic yin yang. Yeah. Was, is it, is it, is it, Sun Tzu or some or Confucius. I don't know who one of the ancient Chinese philosophers and yeah. chaos lies opportunity. Sure. You know, while your bell is getting rung and while everything is upside down and the world is on fire and nothing makes any sense, you need to take a deep breath, pause, think a little, right? And if you're, are you a winner? Or are you a loser? If you're a winner, you're going to look at the chaos around you and you're going to figure out how to make something good out of it. Right. And, and in the extreme of stoicism, you know, when you can't make anything good out of anything and your life is coming to an end in the last 30 seconds and you've tried everything you possibly can try, you can still choose how you die and you can die with dignity. Right. And set an example for everybody. You can do a Socrates, right. <laughs> Even when it's done, is not done, right? I mean, Socrates dies a certain way. And 2,500 years later, we're talking about the example that he set. So the truth is, it is never too late to make things better. It is never too late to make things worse. And in chaos lies opportunity. And yeah, I'm not happy about a lot of things, but that's above my pay grade, right? And, and it's above your pay grade. So here, what can you do? You can embrace digital transformation of education and engagement via Zoom or YouTube or Twitter. You can engage, uh, you can embrace digital property in the form of Bitcoin and think really hard about it and what it means to you because you know, if you had engaged digital property when Bitcoin was $4,000 a coin, where are you right now, right? While the world was coming to an end. Here's the thing. Why, Bitcoin's $10,000 and on Black Thursday, it crashes by 5,000 a coin. And while you think the world is coming to an end, you, you know, you could do nothing. And doing nothing would have been a good idea because you can make things worse. Making things worse would have been to sell, panic sell, right? You could have done nothing or when you, you know, when you did panic sell, you could have thought about it for a bit and you could have said, well, in this universe of uncertainty where it's difficult to move things around, maybe the one thing that I want to own is something which is digital that I can move on a crypto rail. And then you would have bought at 4,500 a coin or 5,000 a coin. And if you couldn't figure out either of those, you had the next six months, Bitcoin trades between 8,000 and 10,000, you know, 12,000 all the way through September, October. You had six months where you could get on the train. And if you're not sure what the world consists of, you know, the analysis I did is like, I looked at everything and I said in June and in May, and I said, well, look, Amazon just doubled in price. Amazon stock doubled in price. It went from 1800 to like 30, $1,700, $3,400 share. 
obviously they the world thinks they've recovered right my my 20 something niece is you know telling me how amazon stock is a good idea and she's buying it i'm like this is the same niece that i wrote the mobile wave about when she's like nine or eight years old i guess she said mike i want the big apple for christmas and i said the big apple you want want me to take you to new york and she goes no no the ipad and I thought, well, like kids are running around asking for iPads, calling it the Big Apple, and that's the future, right? The future is the iPad, not New York City. But at the point that every 20-something is telling you that they're going to trade on Robinhood and buy Amazon stock, you know, you're not really the visionary anymore, right? You, the, you're not getting a 10x upside. So when I looked around in May and June, I said, well, the big tech trade is over. Everybody in the world understands Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. There's, there's, there's not much more juice to squeeze out of that idea. Like, it's not that you couldn't hold it, but it's a conventional idea. It's not an unconventional idea. And so, you know, when Zoom stock, you know, increased by a factor of 10 or whatever during the lockdowns, that, you know, it's clear the world figured it out. But you know, what is it the world did not embrace following the lockdowns? And the answer is Bitcoin. Like I looked at Bitcoin in May and Bitcoin's trading the same price it was two years earlier. It's like 10,000. I'm like, okay, I just got two years of extra development on this asset class. It's a lot less risky today, right? Fidelity was, was custodian. You had all the institutional adoption. You could see the hedge funds were coming. You could see some of the macro investors were talking about. So I'm like, well, it's more mature. It's two years outside the block size wars, right? We're past the block size wars. So, so this is a much less risky asset. It's much more mature. And then the use case, the reason you would want it is much more obvious today, which is you need a digital gold, right? Did you need it in, do you need it in uh, February? Not, no, not nearly so much as you need it by April. And so in eight weeks, the macroeconomic landscape transformed. And then we got hit in the face with a two by four. Okay, there's a war, right? There's a war on, on uh, human contact and there's a war on currency, right? It's almost like we could declare a war on death by natural causes. Mm. And you, you could think very deeply about the implications of that, but, uh, but I, I prefer to focus upon the technology aspect of this. Once you understand, once you, once you see it, it's in front of your face. What happens next is you realize you're going to have to adapt. And so that causes you to start to question your values. And so I questioned the bond market and I lost faith in the bond market. Then I question the equity market and I lost faith in the equity market. Then you question the property market. Property's up 25% in Miami Beach in 12 months, John. I just, I just read that little factoid. Lucky me, I have a house in Miami Beach. <laughs> Two of them actually, right? And, and, um, Where are we staying and so, for the conference? Yeah, really. <laughs> you, you come visit me. I'll hook you up. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stop you by. Can't, you can't, no, I give you a place to stay if you want to, but, uh, but I can't accommodate all your friends. You have too many. So you, <laughs> you have to come like less encumbered, but, um, like a deal. 
But you know, see all these asset classes got monetized, right? Property is monetized up, you know, up 25%. Equity is monetized up even more. Uh, bonds are monetized. Okay, uh, so now you just got to figure out what are you going to do, and what it's like. You don't get to choose whether you live or die, John, but you get to choose how you die, how you live. <laughs> you get to yeah. choose that, right? And so, so you're going to lose. You go down swinging, right? Uh, if you're if you're caught, if you're dealt a bad hand in a game of poker, you still get to decide how you're going to play the hand. Mm. And I think what you see is people that have a negative mentality. Right. If you're a pessimist and you have a negative mentality and you think the world is stacked up against you, you look for things to confirm that you crawl into your basement, you roll over and you die. Right. And, and you can do that. I mean, you can the equivalent of that in a way. Right. Is is you seek solace in substances. Right. You want to drink. You want to do whatever. Numb yourself either with anesthetics. Right. Painkillers be they liquid or in pill form, right? These are just ways to run from the problem. But basic paleo theory, and I, and I know you're somewhat aware of this, right? You're steeped in this, is, is you don't want to eliminate pain, right? Yeah, and, and, and basic theory of, of paleo and basic holistic medicine theory, at the point you start eliminating pain, when you start taking the steroid shots and when you start taking the painkillers and when you start dosing yourself, you start doing long-term damage to your organs and your body. It's kind of obvious, right? The kid has a bad ankle, but he's got to play in the big game, even though it's going to destroy his ligaments. Why is it so important that the kid play in a basketball game in high school and destroy his ligaments? Well, you know, the team's counting on him. Well, like he can't pay, it's, play, it's too painful. Oh, we'll take him to the doctor and we're going to give him like a steroid injection and a drug. Now he can play. Oh, that's really great. Now you're hobbled for life. And when you're 50 years old, you can't walk or 30 or 40. Why do you, why you hobble for life? Well, because when I was 16 years old, somebody thought it was important that I play in a basketball game. And the answer is it wasn't. And if you deprived them of a doctor, right? A lot of medicine is iatrogenic, mm -hmm. right? It's like you don't, there's, there's a couple of examples, right? You, you have compound fractures, right? And maybe you're giving birth, yeah, and someone puts a bullet hole in you, you probably need a doctor. But most other medicine between ages zero and 65, you know, you, you go and they treat you and the treatment is worse than the disease and you're going to end up you know, addicted to an opioid, addicted to a benzo, you're going to end up yeah, testosterone. Yeah, start taking it at age 21, and you'll still be taking it at age 65, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, right, all these it, things. It, it's are... actually a, a reasonable analogy, if I can jump in there for a sec, because, you know, I, I know you lurk on Twitter a bunch, and you, 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 you have your finger on the pulse of the sentiment, and what, you know, the ankle and the athlete analogy there is, is kind of picking your battles right do you want to play the game do you want to not let down your teammates do you want to win that championship and give up whatever the deterioration of your ankle necessitates you give up further down the line or do you sacrifice the glory of that game so that you can live to fight another day and 
you know, as you mentioned, we're in this period where there's a lot of stuff that many of us are not happy about happening. And it's easy just to say that in a conversation like this, but for a lot of people, it's like it, it, it really is disruptive and concerning in their life. And we all have different sets of options available to us. And much of that is determined by our financial capacity uh, and the circumstances of our life, children, family, location, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you seem to be a very pragmatic, conservative, positive uh, operator in what you're doing. And I think, I do think the primary objective here is to get Bitcoin into the hands of most people, as many people as possible, get Bitcoin over the wall, uh, the line, because Bitcoin is a force for good and freedom and truth in the world. And what could be more important than propagating that? But we do exist in this time where there's so many frustrations that, in, that, that entice people to concern, entice people. You know, one of the things that we often talk about is freedom, right? Bitcoin is freedom money. And here we live in a world today where in many jurisdictions, freedom is rapidly being taken away from people. And is the correct response to that to fight for it in some way? The cost of freedom is eternal vigilance? Or is it to try to maneuver around the things that are being imposed on people and focus on things that are of a higher order impact, i.e. perhaps that might be Bitcoin. But there's a real tension and a, you know, it's a very emotional thing that's happening to a lot of people right now. And, you know, I know, like I said, we all encounter it differently, but no one is impervious from it, even someone who's living in, in, in Florida. So, you know, what, what do you think about how you know, the average person should approach that tension that they have right now? I think everybody, everybody has to set their own priorities based upon their circumstances. So the, I mean, my first observation is that the answer is different depending, uh, is different by government, institution, family, or individual, different. And I'm, I'm in favor of constructively cheerfully improving the world to the extent that you can. If you're on death row and you've got five minutes left, your, your range of opportunities is quite circumscribed. You can cheerfully, you know, cheerfully move to your end, right? And, and share a pithy maxim or say something something constructive that you want to leave the world with, you think it'll make the world a better place. And that's what you can do. Or you can go sniveling like a coward to your death, right? I mean, that's what you can do. That's all. You make that decision. If you're in, uh, if you're in Afghanistan or Iraq right now, and you've got a family, and you've got concerns about physical security, political security, economic security, right? Like, if you were to say, I need guns and I need Bitcoin in a hardware wallet or, or on an X phone off the grid, and when the guy crosses my property line if I, with an AK-47, if I don't like the look of the person, I might act, even though there's a rule that says you're not supposed to do something somewhere, I suppose. I get it, right? Like, you have to optimize for your circumstances. Your circumstances in Australia or Canada might be different than your circumstances in Argentina and Turkey. You know, like if, uh, you know, if, if I had money in a bank, 
you know, in, uh, in a place where the regime wanted me to convert it from dollars back to the local currency and the currency is collapsing. Maybe even though, you know, the, the political leadership wanted me to do it, I might not be so inclined. And if I, if I was in a place where I thought the banks might actually freeze my accounts and seize it, that I might be a, a, a much more uh, enthusiastic advocate for self-custody, right? For obvious reasons. But let's say you worked for Fidelity and you had uh, $25 billion in capital and you lived in Boston. Well, uh, would I encourage you, uh, you know, to post all your gun photos on your Twitter account and then get in debates with your boss about whether you should be able to buy Bitcoin. And then when you buy the Bitcoin, put it on a hardware wallet and take it home with you, you know, and, and get in violent conflict with the people you work for at Fidelity? Probably not, right? I would, you know, I'd, your job would probably come to an end, right? And if you're, you know, maybe you're, you believe that, you know, you believe in these things and you want to stick up for them. But the behavior of someone in Boston running $25 billion of money that's rational for the human race is different than the behavior of somebody in Argentina where the currency's lost 65% of its value. But that's different than the behavior of someone in Venezuela, right, or Zimbabwe. And that might be different. You know, everybody's got different circumstances. I, I wouldn't judge, right? <laughs> They're all different, but what I, but I also, I think that when you take the orthodox view, everybody must embrace this extreme crypto anarchist approach, right? Everybody must self custody. You're judging then, right? So I, I, I don't think we should impose our values on everybody else in the world other than one, which is maximize your Bitcoin exposure, right? For example, Back to that Boston Brahmin, you show up to work, you work for a person that works for a person that works for a person. They don't want to own Bitcoin as property. They're definitely not in favor of self-custody. Let's, let's change it from Fidelity to someone else because Fidelity is in the Bitcoin business. But maybe you work for a more conventional money manager. Okay, they, they don't want to own property. They don't want to own the Bitcoin, but you've got like $25 billion. Okay. Well, if you could go buy the, the Bitcoin uh, spot ETF for the 25 billion or with 1 billion of it, yeah, that'd be good. But if you can't buy the spot ETF in the US, buy BITO or, or Valkyries, you know, BTF or whatever. And, uh, you know, the orthodox view would be, oh, you don't, not your keys, not your coin, right? You're not really a true Bitcoin or you're an enemy of Bitcoin. Well, you just took a billion dollars that would have been invested in bonds and you invested it in Bitcoin and you locked up a billion dollars of Bitcoin forever. And because you did that, you drove up the price of Bitcoin, which means you transferred energy in the civilization from the fiat system or the conventional 20th century analog economy to the digital system and the Bitcoin system of the 21st century. So that person is just as much an ally. Maybe they're more an ally, right? I mean, if Warren Buffett got up tomorrow and said, we're going to buy $50 billion worth of the, you know, a Bitcoin ETF, Bitcoin price would go from 60,000 to 600,000. And everyone that thinks not your keys, not your coin 
would have 10 times as much energy. And then they can all go and make the world a better place with 10. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like you, you can have your values, right? You know, ultimately the electricity is coming from a state, a state monopoly regulated institution, you know, controlled by, you know, a government you might not agree with, right? But that doesn't keep you from plugging into electricity, right? Like, like if you get really angry enough, you can say, I'm not using your electricity and I'm not using the oil either. And I'm just going to like get on my pogo stick and jump across the country. But if it's eventually the spring on the pogo stick breaks and then you can't get another spring and then your pogo stick doesn't work. Now you're walking, right? And, and so I, I think accommodating reality is just a rational thing. And um, I, I think that... Uh, everybody in the world has different options, right? If you're in Europe versus in the US versus in China versus in South America. And it's not just, it's not just different by jurisdiction, right? It's, it's, it's literally the case that, that um, some people could simply endorse Bitcoin, but they can't buy it. There are plenty of politicians that are endorsed it, but they haven't really bought material amounts of it. There are some people that could buy a security, but they can't buy the property. There are some that could buy the property, but they couldn't self-custody it. There are some that, are, that could self-custody it on a phone, but they really can't get to the hardware wallet. There are some, there are some that, that can do it with 5% of their assets. <clears throat> like, do I judge you if you're not 500% invested? No, I, I'm going to be 500% invested, but I'm not going to judge you, right? Like maybe you only want to be 100% invested, right? But maybe you only want to be 5% invested, but maybe you're only 1% invested. I, I think that you can, there's two ways you can use your time and your bandwidth. You can either use your time, we can, in Bitcoin, we can use our time bickering with each other over who's the more orthodox Bitcoin or who's the who's better for Bitcoin, you know, like that person's an enemy of Bitcoin, that person's not an enemy of Bitcoin, right? We can be orthodox, extremely orthodox, but where it takes you is at some point, you're like, that person touched a doorknob on Friday at 4 p.m. And they really should not have touched that doorknob. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right? And, and, and that gets pretty extreme. Like 18 years ago, you ate something with pork in it and you haven't repented, right? pretty extreme. And uh, I get it, but uh, you can you can spend a lot of time, and we waste a lot of energy. Yeah, waste a thing. lot of energy. It's a waste of time and energy. Or, like I believe the whole point of laser eyes, right? If the laser eyes metaphor is focus on Bitcoin, don't get distracted, don't get deluded. What Winston Churchill said, you know, if. If you stop to get in a fight with every dog that barks at you, you're never going to make it to your destination. And it's like if you get in a car, <clears throat> you drive across the country and you got to stop at every intersection. And while you're pumping gas, someone's got a political sticker, you know, of the person that you didn't vote for. So you go and you get in a fight with them or, or you know, you find out that maybe the bathrooms are dirty and they violate code. So you get in a fight over that or you don't like the color, you're gonna fight over that, or someone else pulls up next to you and they make fun of your green car and you're gonna fight over that, right? And, and if you stop and you get in a fight, eventually, you know, I don't care if you're Muhammad Ali, you could be the best fighter in the world. You, if you get in a, 
this is the lesson of, you would think it's a lesson of martial arts. You ever watch these ultimate fighters or you ever, you ever study with any degree of diligence about it, what you conclude is on the day when you get in a fight with someone and their buddy is standing behind you with an ice pick, you're dead. Maybe not even with an ice pick, right? Like all of these fights is like, there, there's no such thing as a fair fight. And every single fight, you're like, oh, I didn't expect the guy to rip my ear off, or I didn't expect him to poke my eye out, or, or they don't, you know, there are a lot of rules in UFC, there's still stuff they can't do, mm -hmm. right? You watch it compared to boxing, and you're like, oh, oh, my God, like a lot of joints are getting, you know, destroyed. But still, there are rules. In the real world, in the real world, there are no rules, there are no fair fights. You're going to walk up and you're going to mouth off to the wrong person and someone that's out of your field of view is going to put a bullet in your head. It's like, if you ever talk to people that have ever been real policemen, like, like the, you know, I, I have, I know them. Like most policemen die on the job, they get shot in the back, right? Like nine out of 10 times you're thinking somehow someone's going to be in front of you and you're going to defend yourself with the gun, with a knife, because you watch things in the movies. Life is not like the movies. In Hollywood, in Hollywood, the, the antagonists come together, you know, and you watch them and they're right up in each other's face because the camera needs them to be in the same shot because otherwise it's not good television. So in Hollywood, they put these people in close combat with confrontation. In real life, if you ever got that close and someone really disagree with you, they would literally rip your eyes out or, you know, you would you would be, you know, uh, maimed within about two seconds. But the truth is, in the real world, 10,000 years ago, people didn't settle their differences in close quarters. 10,000 years ago, I take a bow and an arrow and I put it in your back. Right. And like, we're, we're not going to wait for you to see me and react. And so if you're going to be a fighter and you consistently get in fights, eventually you're going to, uh, you're going to diminish yourself. You're going to get taken out by some asymmetric threat from above or below or, or the corner or the best fighter in the world, right. Is going to get through about four or five rounds before you know, that that's the end of them. And uh, that's why you just you can't engage in that it's it dissipates energy. I, if I, I largely agree with you. But there's two things I'd like to add to that one. I in, in a world where everything is so PC, everything is so, you know, people have are afraid to speak their minds. I appreciate being in a grouping of people where even be they um, imperfect people and perhaps their chosen course of action is not necessarily the most valid or logical one. I appreciate that they're one willing to speak what they believe to be the true unencumbered, the truth unencumbered. And I appreciate the willingness to at least attempt, even if they're wrong, to communicate or uphold a certain ideal. And then the final, the, the third piece of that is, and I, you know, I, I don't disagree really any thing with your your analogy there but i one of the things that i often say is you know people come in and you're right they get hounded if they're not preaching the the, the pure gospel let's say if they're not engaging in this thing quote unquote properly and we may say you know that it, it's 
it's not practical to put that type of expectation on people. But what I do like is I do think Bitcoin is a profound form of truth. And I think it's a form of truth that reveals many other truths downstream of it. And I think a lot of people in this space are broadly speaking, true seekers. They want to know how things work. They want to know how to build and actualize themselves in the world. And if you come into the space and you're turned away by some meanies that are telling you that things should be this way or that way, well, then I'm not that convinced that your pursuit of truth is all that dedicated. And so I, I kind of, I, I feel like it's an interesting filter and maybe filter's the wrong word. What conflict does do, even though it's dangerous, potentially uh, lethal, is conflict always reveals character. And that's why I like the UFC. That's why I train martial arts myself. That's why I like debates. Even if it is a seeming waste of energy, I think part of our enterprise here is getting to know who we're doing this, the, all of this with, who, who, who is in this phenomenon with us. And even though it's overkill oftentimes, and even though feelings are hurt and that kind of stuff, I, there's an element of appreciation because I think that when you create friction between people, their character is revealed. And ultimately, that's what I want to know. I want to know what someone is really about, not just what they say to the interview person, not just what they say when they're, uh, you know, uh, on stage speaking. I want to know what everyone, the truth of people, not just the truth of money and the truth of energy and the truth of culture, you know. And so for those reasons, even though I don't engage much of it myself, I, I have an unappreciation for it even if I may not, you know, advocate for it. I understand. I mean, I, I can't argue with it. I mean, it's a, it's a, an idealistic notion and it would be, it's good. It's good to, uh, to be in an environment of truth with people that share your ideology. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, it just, uh, I guess uh, what I'd say is there's, there is an aspect of Bitcoin, which is ideology and, and it's, there's a place for it to manifest itself. Like uh, manifesting ideology in defense of the protocol is a virtue. Like fighting really hard during the block size wars, fighting hard against people that would uh, corrupt the protocol. I think that's very important. But, there, but there's also a place for diplomacy. The, you like the United States, but the United States would not exist were it not for diplomacy that brought France into the Revolutionary War. Nor the and the United started it. And, and the United States was not France. And people in the United States didn't want to be France. But somehow we were willing to take the help of the French, right? You know, so, so sometimes you end up with these interesting circumstances of diplomacy, and, and, and they're throughout history, right? Like, like uh, the Romans thought they were better, but the Romans still needed the Greeks or the Spaniards to fight their wars. And so they accommodated the ideologies or the different political systems of the Spaniards and the Greeks. And as long as they did, they were effective. And at some point when you become so orthodox in your ideology that you reject everybody else, then you become isolated. The Spartans became isolated. And uh, we see what happened to them, right? Ultimately, they were squeezed out of the entire system 
So, so the challenge is had a good how run do you first, make? Though. Sorry, they had a good run first. I mean, nothing lasts forever. I'm, you know, I'm just saying. I'm not advocating for. I, I would rather I would anything. rather win than die trying. They won a lot. They were the, the you know the the hegemon of of the ancient Greek world for a while, right? I guess my again my point is if one percent of the population shares your orthodox ideology and ninety nine percent doesn't, and you're unable to win over the support of the majority of the 99%, then you're going to lose. Yeah. So some, somehow you have to find a way to engage. If you, if you go out, like for, there are lots of examples, right? Of things that you probably don't agree with, but if you go and you get, in a, you ever get on an airplane and get in a fight, how many people are gonna get in a fight with a flight attendant because they don't wanna wear a mask on an airplane? And what would happen if you were to do so? Right? Like, the point is, you're just—you're not going to win that fight, right? Mm -hmm. Right? You're gonna—you're going to have the, the airplane's going to get grounded, right? So, do you really want to tell everybody on an airplane flight that disagrees with mass that they should just go ahead and fight with the pilot on the airplane and ground the plane because they're not getting to their destination? Nor are you fixing the problem. You're, all you're doing is engaging in an inflammatory behavior, which is going to result in you at best, not getting your destination at worst, you're going to end up in jail. Right. Now, if you do end up in jail, because you fought over, you know, a second order issue, whether you should or should not wear a mask on an airplane, how are you going to do anything good for Bitcoin? <laughs> like, uh, if how, how about this one, the guy with the $50 billion, he can give you the $50 billion, or he can give you the $50 billion and also get in a fight with, you know, a local restaurant that wants you to wear a mask and not give you the $50 billion. Are you going to reject the $50 billion because you really want him to fight with the dude in the restaurant over the dude in the restaurant probably doesn't even believe one way or the other either. He just got told by his boss who got told by his boss. We got told by his boss. Okay. So you're going to go find the person that's at the end of a, a string of six different people that simply doesn't want to fight over either. And you're going to fight with that person and you're going to lose hundreds of billions of dollars out of principle. And I'm using, I'm, I know I'm being hyperbolic to make the point, but <clears throat> ultimately, should you get invited to the White House? And if you happen to not agree with all of every single position and everything you see in the White House, and you get a chance to ask the President of the United States to support Bitcoin, right, and adopt it, and spread it throughout the world and make it a hundred trillion dollar asset class. I just think you probably ought to use your words carefully. <laughs> and so in, instead of instead of engaging in a litany of discussion, like I've seen people on Twitter, you know, and someone will say something good about Bitcoin, a politician, and they'll go, well, I parsed everything they said in the last decade. And I noticed in the year 2014, they said something that ambiguously could be interpreted as negative about Bitcoin. And so I hate them anyway. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, it's a long time to hold a grudge. If you're going to parse every single word said by someone in the past decade, or how about better one? 
once you parse every word said by anybody that worked with them for the past decade and see if you can take offense to any of it, and then the next time you see them and the five minutes you have with them, once you go ahead and lambast them, right, for not being, for not being orthodox and true, and then, you know, in the fourth minute, they're going to turn away from you. In the fifth minute, you're never going to get invited back. And, and I would say if you had the opportunity to, for example, make a billion dollar sale and orange pill them, and you could have just not debated with them over whether they went to the right college or whether, you know, it's like you, you know, you studied the wrong thing, or I read your book review and I didn't like it or I really disagree with something you said about someone somewhere, what you realize is that, that um, the world, let me say it a different way. We can fix the money and the money is half of the problems in the world, but the other half of the problems in the world, it would be arrogant and presumptuous for you to think you're gonna fix. You wanna fix you know, the way they serve food in Australia you want to fix the way that, uh, you know, an airline operates its queuing structure. You want to fix everything that happens in China. You want to fix everything that happens everywhere in the world across a thousand different dimensions. It's like, maybe you do, but like if you lose your, look at a laser, right? The metaphor of a laser. If you actually keep a pinpoint focus, you can shoot a laser miles through the atmosphere. As soon as you spread that focus, you can shoot the laser feet. And if you diffuse it enough, it literally, you know, the lamp hardly lights up eight feet in every direction. And if you get eight feet out, it's not so good as one foot. And really weak lamps kind of work for 12 inches to 24 inches. So the light is energy, energy gets dissipated, and you really have to make a decision. What are you trying to accomplish in your life because generally the mistake, the mistake that most, uh, most confident people make and most arrogant people make, but, but the youth make this mistake all the time. They either think they're indestructible. That's why the military recruits 18 year olds, 17 year olds, because you think you're indestructible. I was in the ROTC. We crawled around and wore fatigues and we and we did all these, you know, did all this physical exercise and we studied everything and we thought somehow that may that makes you safer. Okay. When the truth of the matter is, in a real war, something 50,000 feet up is going to drop a bomb that's going to land half a kilometer away from you and kill you, and you're not even going to know it hit you. Right? Modern warfare, we have weapons that shoot over the horizon. You won't hear them. You won't see them, right? You're not, it's going to be death from above. And, and all this stuff that you think gives you, uh, gives you protection or confidence, it's worthless. It's not going to make a difference. And so with regard to, to uh, all these things, how do companies fail? They always fail because the CEO does a dilutive acquisition. They get diluted. They overexpand. Napoleon charges into Russia, no, loses an army. He goes to Egypt, loses an army. Caesar goes to Egypt, loses his army, right? Hitler goes to Russia, loses the army, right? Over and over again, the story of history is people are successful and then they think a success in one area uh, makes, them, makes them qualified to be successful in another. 
And so as you expand, every single time you expand your scope, you dilute your energy. You know, you know on Twitter, it's like uh, if you express one, uh, one strong idea, like what are you? You're the Bitcoin podcaster. You, know, you cover Bitcoin. Okay, check. You have a chance. Now, once you go back on Twitter and change your bio to podcast on Bitcoin and medicine, Bitcoin and, you know, conservative politics, Bitcoin and guns, pick anything, Bitcoin and ice cream, Bitcoin and whatever. When you actually double your, uh, your coverage, your engagement's going to drop by a factor of four to 10. Now go triple it. Your engagement's going to drop by a factor of a hundred. Like if, if you actually had three or four things, if you change your, uh, your thing and all of a sudden you're expressing strong opinions about whatever it is, every, the history of, uh, of politics is you run for office and if they take your negative uh, polls, 0% of the people have a negative opinion of you when you first start. And then it becomes 1%. And then they hear that you're a Republican or a Democrat, and then it becomes 30%. And then you say something about guns. You love them, you hate them. Then it becomes 45%. Then you say you don't have an opinion. It becomes 50%. You don't have an opinion, I hate you. You have an opinion, I hate you. You're there, I hate you. You're running against someone, I hate you. People's negatives keep, keep uh, going up, right? Like the sitting president manages to be 50% negative on election day, and they all get to like 70% negative ratings or 75% negative ratings two years into their incumbency. Okay, so you're trying to do something, but what you got to realize is that every single time you, you, know, you express an opinion, right, you make an enemy. Or like if I... If I were to, as I said before, like a, a rock star, a musician, pick your favorite, like whatever intellectually vacuous influencer, and they say Bitcoin boils the ocean. If I were to go and say, well, you're just stupid, have fun staying poor, you know, you don't get it. You obviously haven't done the work. If you did, if I did anything with sarcasm, laced with, laced with sarcasm or toxicity, Half of the people reading that would hate me for life. Half, because mm. they don't they don't know. All they know is that you disparage their icon, right? And and maybe the greatest troll, right? Of the greatest uh, troll of our Twitter era lately has been Donald Trump. And Donald, you know, had something negative to say about a number of people. You know, if it's Oprah Winfrey or if it's Rosanna Arnold or, or whoever it is, it doesn't matter, right? If it was a, about a Mexican or a South American or, or whatever, every single time you get engaged in that discussion, you turn off, you flip 50% of the people. And as far as I can see, if you actually took the opposite side of an argument a decade ago, people still remember Look, look at Bitcoiners, sure. right? You just illustrated it. I mean, I've illustrated Bitcoiners are, can be very toxic. And if someone said something negative about Bitcoin five years ago, right? They're still remembering. In fact, they're gleefully remembering. It's like they enjoy, like I, I look at this and I'm like, 
here's a politician that like likes us and wants to help the Bitcoin movement. And then there are people on Twitter that are criticizing them. They're like, well, you're not allowed to support us now because four years ago you did it. It's like, instead of embracing people and saying, okay, well, you've changed your mind or it seems like you're accommodating now, instead of welcoming them, we tend to take joy in beating people to death for something they said that might've been ignorant or, or, you know, inappropriate at a point in the past. I even get beat up. Like I, I still have that stupid 2013 tweet thrown in my face over and over <laughs> and over again. I'm like, yeah, well, look, been, look, I, point taken, right. Point taken. And, and I actually, I'm even still, I'm grateful for both because I think truth is a process of discovery and you don't necessarily know the truth of whatever is the topic you're dancing around nor the truth of the individuals who you're interacting with to do so, unless you do your best to speak the truth. And everyone's going to have a different approach and perspective on that. So even everything you're saying, I agree with. And that's obviously been the approach that you've chosen and largely mine. But I do appreciate the, vari I, I do, uh, appreciate the variety of approaches because what I'm after is discovery of it all, the characters and the ideas. The char there's a difference between uttering the truth versus uh versus being diplomatic of course there is but I'm, what i'm if saying is i appreciate the bare blunt truth sometimes you, you know can, what i'm saying you can be truthful if you're pseudonymous on twitter yeah but the problem with that is when you're pseudonymous on twitter and you go to someone with 27 million followers and you call them an idiot if they're like me they just take their finger and they go block <laughs> And that's and you have been exited cosmically from their universe forever with sure. no appeal. OK, so you didn't accomplish anything. You're not, you've actually been blocked from their 27 million followers. So if you thought you were going to evangelize when you get too harsh, right? right. What happens is you get exited from cyberspace and you don't accomplish anything. Cause and if, effect, right? There's a consequence <clears throat> for every I, action. I think in private circles, look, it, there are things that you should say with your close friends. And there are things that I say with my close friends. And then there are things that you can say in an in a all Bitcoin community, if it's just Bitcoiners. And then there are things that you could say in a business environment. And then look, there, I mean, there could be some, some dude with enormous power in an authoritarian regime that could do something worth 10 billion or a hundred billion dollars to the Bitcoin network, but he can't necessarily utter it publicly and articulately yeah. and speak truth. The speaking truth to power, that's like a very romantic notion until you're standing in front of the guy in North Korea that has the anti-aircraft gun leveled at you. And he asks you to go ahead and speak your mind. Yeah. Right. And then, and then the point is, just another phrase, right? You, you don't, this is a Robert Heinlein quote. Have you read Heinlein? You don't win wars by dying for your country. You win wars by making the other guy die for his country. So this heroic notion of I'm going to die on this hill or I'm going to die speaking truth is like, well, well, that's not the point. The point is to make the other guy die. The point is, the point is, is not to heroically go up in flames. The, the point is to win the war. Mm -hmm. And so winning, winning World War II included the United States working with Stalin, 
who's not everybody's favorite person, you know, against the interest of Hitler. Mm. Right. And and we could have decided we'd just go ahead and go to war with Russia and Japan and Germany if we wanted to be idealistic about the whole thing. Right. And, and, and of course, I could give you a litany of like pretty much like every war and every political struggle in the history of the world where at some point there's a diplomacy and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so I, I, I think that maturity is figure out your truth and then choose your battles. And when your back is against the wall, like when there's people coming for your family and, and it's a do or die situation, then I think you should fight. And when someone wants to corrupt the network, I think you have to fight. But, uh, you know, when somebody wants to disagree with one of your political views and misunderstand Bitcoin and simply buy $100 billion worth of the ETF, I think you ought to just nod and thank them and take their money because the $100 billion is going to increase the power of all the people that understand it better and are more convicted by a factor of 10. And that's kind of like Benjamin Franklin letting the king of France come help us out, even though we weren't in favor. It's like we could have go told him to go F himself because we don't, you know, believe in that sort of yeah, thing yeah. right like, or or I, I, we could just graciously accept you know the help in a mm -hmm. time of need because ultimately these things are coalitions and you have to move forward i think constructively like there's a place there's a place in 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 a secure environment for us to focus on the ideology and there's a there's a place where it's it's much more constructive to focus on the technology mm. because technology is apolitical and, and technology technology uh isn't threatening uh to people that don't quite share your ideology but they share part of it right and ultimately ultimately like uh i think our goal is to win over the world and if it takes if it takes a, a thousand hours to truly you know get it, and let's say it takes somewhere between a hundred hours and a thousand hours, well, it's if you say to someone you're not allowed to say anything positive about Bitcoin until you got to the thousand hour point, and you can't buy it until you get the thousand hour point, right? Then you're kind of undermining, you know, your movement quite a lot, and I think that. Um, I think that when people are first getting into the space, they don't really uh, understand it as well as they will. I mean, it's it's a natural yeah, thing. Course. We need to find uh, a smooth path to bring people into the space and then cultivate them so that their conviction grows over time. And that generally calls for a bit more diplomacy. I would I would I would save my 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 fight my real my real uh, aggression for survival situations that are really ultimate life or death threats to the movement. And when you, you'll know that when you get there. Yeah. So you're trying to tell me you haven't told a fellow billionaire to have fun staying poor in one of these private calls you've been doing around the world over the last year. Sometimes I want to, like something <laughs> I get really, but you know, ultimately with, with all of these, anybody that's got a billion dollars, 
if you were lucky enough to get five minutes of their time once in your life, you've been fortunate. If you got a one hour audience with them, you've been obscenely fortunate. When you have that much power, you might actually take, you know, some, you know, two, three, four, five of those meetings a month. You, if you're, if you're an inquisitor, you might look at 20, 30 ideas a year, but it's more likely you look at five ideas a year. So if you actually manage to get an audience with them, then you, you have to think very hard about how do you constructively use the time? And I think your objective is, is two things. One, you would like to educate them on the benefits of Bitcoin and show them a path by which they can, they can improve their family, themselves, or their organization, or their, achieve their goals with Bitcoin. Figure out what that is. And then the second thing you want to do is if you fail, remember what I said, things can always get worse. Okay, you get to the end of the meeting and, you know, the person runs the, I don't know, the teacher's union or, the, you know, or whatever, and you want them to invest a billion dollars in Bitcoin and they go, I just don't get it. You know, I, I, I think, uh, I don't think it'll work. I don't think we can do it. Well, then you want to graciously withdraw and say, okay, well, uh, you know, I think maybe there'll be some catalyst over the next 12 months. And, and if you ever change your mind, you get back to me and, uh, and or what would have to happen for you to change your mind or that's okay. We understand that it's, it's a, it's a process and we think it'll take a decade, but we're patient. And uh, when you need us, you call us, we'll be there. Like that, that is just classic sales 101. I didn't sell you the thing, the car today. I didn't sell you the boat today. I didn't sell you the whatever today, the, the house today. But you call me when you change your mind. The customer's always right. And you do that, A, because there's a decent chance. It, it wasn't the first person that pitched Bitcoin to me that persuaded me. It was more like the third. <laughs> the third, right? So... So there's a decent chance that some, some cataclysmic event, some, some major bone jarring event will take place in the next 12 to 36 months that will cause them to reassess their beliefs. And, and, then, and then you want them to remember you as the person with the solution. So even if I can't make the sale, I want to position as I've got a solution. If you change your mind or should you decide you need to buy that house in Miami Beach, like eight years ago, if you'd asked me, I said, you can eat a house in Miami Beach. Taxes are going up and this is the place to be. But people don't get it. So eight years go by. And in 2020, a lot of people got religion. And by 2021, they thought, well, I should really move to Florida. You just want to be that real estate agent that's the Miami Beach hookup, right? right. Because then they, you're the first call and they call you. But here's the other point. Right. I, I wanted to make the sale, but I know I'm probably not going to make the sale. I want to be positioned as the solution salesperson so that you'll call me at the first call when you change your mind. But the third point is, I don't want to say, have fun staying poor, you idiot. You're too stupid to live in Miami Beach. Yeah, you, know, you don't deserve Miami Beach. Right. You're just you just don't get it. You go back to the great white north and live in whatever your thing because you're just not good enough. We're better. If I if if I leave, 
with that notice, then the guy just remembers people from Miami Beach are assholes. Right, of course. Right, right. Well, and, and then, but then the point is, then they go on Twitter, like a certain person that will remain name. I mean, in fact, there's a bunch on Twitter. If you trace all the blue checks that don't like the laser eyes or, you know, and there's like, I could think at least three, four or five, I can think half a dozen. They go back on Twitter and they say, you know, that, you know, these people, they're just assholes. Don't, you know, I, I'm going to, and I'm going to go block them out of principle, or I'm just going to go and disparage them out of principle. In fact, I'm going to go find their enemy and help them. Right. Because what you did is, is you got underneath someone's skin and it became an ego thing. Mm. It's like the, the thing, and this is just basic sales. Like I, I've been a salesperson. I've been in business my entire life. You know, it took me a decade to sell to Walmart. You know, like I tried every single thing out of the sun. It's like, nope, 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 nope. And here's the lesson you learned is that those people, those customers, if they, if they didn't have a good experience with you, they will remember for a decade, maybe for 15 years, it'll be in the lexicon like, oh yeah, microstrategy, they tried to sell us something, but that we didn't like how we were treated. And if they remember that, then even when they need what you have to sell, they're still not going to buy from you because, because there's a principal thing at stake. So you don't get to have ego and you don't get to have parity when you're a salesperson. Right. Yet you, the salesperson gets beat up just like the waitress. You know, you ever go to a restaurant? It's like everybody seems to think that somehow the waitress is responsible for their hamburger coming out medium instead of medium rare uh, or coming out late. Or the waitress is like, or the wait, it's waitress's fault that the dish is expensive or the martini wasn't mixed properly. And I feel bad for the waitress because the waitress is like the front end and they get all that toxicity. But ultimately, if you've ever been in one of those jobs, you know that the, res the correct response is not to react to toxicity with toxicity. Because if you're the waitress and some drunk patron says, you know, yo, you know, this sucks, take it back. And you go, look, you're too stupid. You were spitting in it, you drunk fool. Well, the guy's going to like punch you. Okay, so now you just got punched. Or, you know, as I've said in Miami or I said in Florida, this is another classic Heinlein quote, an armed society is a polite society. Mm. You know, there are, there, are, there are little girls walking around with guns in their purses in Florida with a concealed carry permit. And there are guys that are doing that as well. And so think twice before you open your mouth and mouth off to someone or even, you know, you, and it's not even just mouthing off. You just be sarcastic. Like, totally, totally. Yeah, I said, yeah, you're the 13th person today that's told me that and I could care less. It's like, okay, well, that's great. You know, you won the argument and the guy puts a bullet in your head and now you lost the war. And the point is, if you're, if you're going to go out in public, you know, and you're going to evangelize, if you're going to go sell something, then you got to be prepared to be, get beat up by the prospect. The customer is always totally. right. Totally. And it's like, you're like, well, I got to fight for this. It's like, you don't really have to fight to persuade someone that, that Bitcoin is a good thing. Uh, you have to fight to keep something, someone from destroying the thing you love. And mm -hmm. there's a difference 
between uh, fighting to defend your family or defend Bitcoin against someone that would destroy it versus fighting with a prospect that simply hasn't embraced it fast enough for totally. your taste. Let, let, let me ask you this. So for most of your career, you know, you wake up, you brush your teeth, your assistant lets you know you got meetings with shareholders and managers and what have you. And then, you know, that's, that's life, right? That's running a business. That's doing all the things you need to do. Last year, you wake up, you brush your teeth, your assistant lets you know it's one of these billionaires. It's a head of state. It's a senator. It's a whomever. Like, because we're all normal people, right? We have exceptional experiences sometimes, but we all, you know, we all wake up and brush our teeth and pretty much have a similar experience of life, or at least a similar, we engage it similarly. So like, what has it been like for your life to have been transformed into that kind of a role? Like, let's, let's point taken on all the how to do sales and how not to shame people into do, doing whatever you want them to do. But like, what's it been like for you to, to become this sort of role? It's got to be somewhat I would I say it's know, invigorating, weird, enjoyable, invigorating. Yeah, yeah. it's invigorating. I, we all have a mission, right? Like the world's got a problem. We've got a solution. Right. And uh, and uh, most people don't understand the solution. So you're on a mission. And I, I, I think it's not unlike I mean, I guess I wonder what Tesla felt like. He's trying to evangelize electricity and electric motors or what Andrew Carnegie felt like when he was going around the world showing, you know, people didn't know how to create bridges, right? And he's, he's, he's going to a city in Ohio and he's putting a bridge over the Ohio River and it's gonna change the entire city, you know, for the better and people are afraid they can't trust steel or that they can't trust the, the iron. So, and Rockefeller had that same idea, I think. So I, I think that when you have this uh, transformational technology, that really is a solution to, it's a solution to everybody, right? It's, it's not the solution to everything. It's not the solution to everything, but it is a way to make everything better. It doesn't, you know, pick any, any, any city, any state, any government, any institution, any corporation, any family office, any investor, any instrument, right? I I can improve an insurance policy. I can improve fixed income. I can improve a bank. I can improve a mobile app. I can improve anything, right? Right. It's like it's like sucralose, right? Sure, everything you put sugar into tastes better, right? And uh, so we've got this universal, universal solution that's that's very uh, that's very useful, and I think uh, I think that. Uh, Every single day, there's a, there's a different opportunity to educate and evangelize. And they're all different, right? And so you, you just kind of, I, I guess, you, you figure out what your audience is and then what's going to be most constructive. And you try to, try to stay cheerful. Sometimes we get dragged in some negativity, but we turn around, you're doing good at that, right? We want to be very uh, upbeat. And uh, then, then the rest is an exercise in, um, what is it? Exercise in communication. How many minutes do I have with you, <laughs> right? I have, I have 15 minutes in order to communicate to a senator or, or I have 30 minutes to communicate to someone that runs a multinational conglomerate. 
what they can do and why they should do it. Right. And so I, I think that that's constructive and it's very, Speaking it's very which, energizing. I think you did great on the, the recent Tucker appearance. What was that experience that was a, like? That was a classic example, which is like, I, I know I'm going to go on uh, a television show and the constituency is conservatives that generally are, are getting political content. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and they might not know anything about Bitcoin. And how are we going to very rapidly, you know, level set them on inflation, sound money, Bitcoin, digital property, and how it's good for the world and good for and good for the United States, right? I mean, how do we, how do we uh, touch on every topic that's going to resonate with them? And we don't have that much time. At one point, you know, you get excited, right? So it's tricky. At one point, Tucker goes. <laughs> You've been talking you for, talk for like 50 minutes. minutes. Yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry. You could, you could, you could edit. And he's like, no, it's great. It's great. Like, he clearly hasn't uh, watched many of your other interviews. That wouldn't be much of a surprise if he had. It was supposed to be a one hour, John. <laughs> it was supposed to be a one hour thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. We're going to try to do this in an hour, but it went over, but he, you know, he was very gracious and he, and he was, as you could see, he's very engaged. Absolutely. And he was orange pill, by the way, we finished. I don't think he would, I don't think he would uh, mind me saying, it's like, yeah, I need Bitcoin. I understand why, right? Yeah. I get it. I get it. I can't remember and exactly so, what you said at the, at the closing minute. He was trying to shut it down and you, you took another like minute or two to really put a cherry on it. And I remember thinking it was a, a really great way to, to seal up the whole thing. So, I mean, and he has a huge, huge audience, right? His ratings are, I think, probably amongst the best in, in mainstream media land. So, you know. You're doing that's, the Lord's work. <laughs> that's hopefully the beginning. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and people will go like, I can't believe you went on that television show. Like I would go on CNN too. Right. Like, yeah. You know, I go the right, the left, the middle, you know, if I, I sure. at the end of the day, this is a solution to everybody. And, uh, and if, if you're going to express it as ideology, it, it's best to keep it as narrowly focused ideology, the ideology of, of truth and energy and integrity and empowerment. Mm -hmm. Like, especially, you know, the ideology of empowerment. If, if, if you keep it close to that, you don't get drawn into these polarizing debates. And you, and, and you can see what happens to the world when we polarize to left and right, you know, I, I don't have to tell you, you know, right? I mean, everybody on this podcast knows what happens if you construct a polarity, which is a, which is a, I win, you lose, because it takes us to a dark place. So I think if you're going to have an ideology, keep it as a ideology of empow economic empowerment, and even better, just an ideology of empowerment, we're just going to allow human beings to reach their full potential. And if you're going to articulate as a technology, it's a technology of empowerment. This is digital energy, which is a million times more efficient than the thing that it replaces. And we can build the 21st century civilization on it. And if we don't embrace it, we will be held back and we will not be able to move forward as a human race. Yeah. And I think but that's that's the really interesting point to me. You said this is a technology to allow or help people, human beings, to reach their full potential. You referenced earlier when you first kind of the light bulb came on in, in March and you realize, oh, inflation actually isn't the CPI. It's this for this and this for that. 
and then it extends out from there. And then you just mentioned that this whole process has been invigorating. And I think all of us, myself, everyone listening, all the people on Twitter would agree. And I think there's a really interesting thing happening here. And this is the meat of the what I like to dig into when I have these conversations. But it's almost like one component of it is Bitcoin is so obvious in certain domains, and yet it remains so mysterious in others. The surface area of understanding this thing just seems to continue to grow. The more you learn about it, the more you learn there is to learn about it. And one of the effects I think that that has is you end up saying, okay, well, what is this thing? And we understand things in relation to all the other knowledge that we have. We help, we use that other knowledge to contextualize and understand the new thing. And I feel like Bitcoin is this almost black hole of what is this thing, that question. And we're having to consult philosophy, economics, monetary theory, history, political theory, and pretty much everything in religion, you know, to determine what is this thing? What is this thing that fundamentally changes our relationship to our own energy and to our perception of, of time out into the future? And one of the things that as a result of that, I think is happening is, and I don't just think this is a, a, a matter of Bitcoin's opportunity cost being so intense right now during its monetization phase. I think because of the attributes it has, and the value that will be ascribed to it, it will always have this to some degree. But I think what's happening is people are, the more they learn about Bitcoin, the more it ascends their value hierarchy, the more they, it, the more value they ascribe to it. And that fundamentally restructures or changes their, the, their value frameworks internally. And so a lot of things get pushed down, those frivolous spending items or what have you, those get pushed down because I'd rather that be sats. I'd rather grow my, accumulate more Bitcoin than spend on this junk. But the things that can can stand up to such a comparison, like beauty and family and health and wisdom and freedom, those things remain because they're somewhat transcendent values. They're they're less easy to shove down that hierarchy. And I think what ends up happening is in the minds of these transformed Bitcoiners is we end up having Bitcoin near or at the top of this hierarchy of values that's helping to restructure and reframe a, for lack of a better term, a better system of values and it's also helping us to discover what the highest values are and this winds up in the religious territory because part of the religious enterprise in my opinion is trying to determine what is the greatest value to subordinate all other values to and how does that lead to the most successful or constructive life and it's really you know so i find that dynamic incredibly interesting that the value that bitcoin represents and the more you learn about what it is the more it restructures your internal hierarchies, in, in my opinion, in a more, in a manner that places uh, value more on things where value should be placed, let's say, and pushes down things that may have been hanging around up there because there was, because you lacked that framework and now are getting pushed out. And you see this in the kind of principles and values that a lot of Bitcoiners express, whether it's in these somewhat, you know, um, you know, these dialogues that happen on Twitter that maybe we, we think sometimes go a little bit off the rails, but I appreciate the process that's playing out, which is this internal restructure, restructuring is happening and the dialogue is happening to try to refine our understanding of all this stuff. And I know I asked you this a little bit uh, last time, but you know, a year is a long time in Bitcoin land, as we said at the beginning. How, have, how has your journey of understanding this thing and all the related concepts 
how has that changed your system, you know, internal system of values, your experience of, of life, what you are striving for? Basically, how has it transformed you? Because look, I mean, this, this will sound weird to Normieland, and it's not necessarily something you'd mention on Tucker, but this thing is having like a very transformative effect on the consciousness of people who delve most deeply into it. And that's a really bizarre notion. You know, so I'd love to hear what, what, if any, your experiences have been in that domain. Um, I'm, I'm searching for the right word. Uh, <clears throat> I think um, empowerment is probably a, a good word to focus on. It's empowering. And so I, I, I would say in the absence of power, life is miserable. And Bitcoin is empowering. And therefore, it, when you discover it, you transition from, miser from, from a state of more misery to a state of maybe of no misery or, or, or of less misery or more happiness. If we look at it, uh, look at this throughout human history, right? Before fire, if you were a human being running around on the earth and there was no fire, life is pretty miserable and short. And um, before, before, if you ever try to cross the water without a sail, imagine getting in a boat with a and rowboat and you're trying to cross the water. It's very miserable. And it could be frustrating. And if the wind blows, you're never getting to your destination ever. Like you just can't, and you're probably going to die. And uh, you can imagine how, hu how human beings felt when they discovered sails and the degree of enthusiasm, right, uh, that they put into that. And if you look at the history of, I mean, look at the ship behind me, look at, look at the intricacy of that sailing ship, and that is 17th century technology. But it was a source of life. And uh, without the sales, you didn't have the East India Company and you didn't have commerce and you, you, know, you didn't have trade. And so this was a technology that became empowering and the, and the civilization evolved. Right? You could see the civilization first, uh, you know, it first formed around, uh, around the Mediterranean and then you saw civilization that, that evolved as sailing technology improved. And yet, you get to 1900 and the average life expectancy is 50. Uh, in the Revolutionary War, it's like 32, 33. Life is short and miserable. And, you know, and what expectation do you have if you're living on the frontier in 1750? Now, go forward to 1900, you're going to live to age 50. When Bismarck rolled out the Social Security program, you could get you could retire at like age 65 in Germany and or in Prussia in the late 19th century, and the average life expectancy of a German was like 33 or something, 35. It's like a joke, right? So, so what was the technology made the difference, right? It's like antibiotics, conquest of infectious diseases, a knowledge of sterilization, and then maybe some electricity made a big difference. You know, we, we romanticize horses, but you ever hang out with people around horses, everybody has ever ridden horses their entire life has a story about getting badly injured off a horse, right? Uh, it's dangerous living in close contact with animals, the automobile made a difference. 
So these technologies were empowering to the human race. And you could imagine when Tesla figured out electricity, he's running around empowered and he wants to, wants to scream to the world how you can do all this stuff. And it's, and, uh, it's a mission. And I think uh, when we got to computers, right? I think uh, Steve Jobs referred to it as the bicycle of the mind. It's a bicycle for the mind. But, you know, I give you a bicycle and what is that? How does that make you feel? Well, you can ride around your city, take the bicycle away and you feel like you had your wings clipped. So I think that in the 21st century, we're now seeing this, this idea of digital property and digital energy and it's enormously empowering, literally empowering. That's why I refer to it as digital energy, because if, if you have digital energy that'll hold $500 trillion worth of value without leakage, with no inflation, with no friction, if I manage to put half of the energy, or, or in essence, all the liquid energy of the human race, right? We got a word for that, it's capital all, you know, capitalist, if we put all the capital in liquid form, and then we manage to put it in a container, uh, put it in a crucible or a reactor that, um, that was stable over long periods of time, and if we could move it at high velocity with no friction, you've created a superconducting network. It's like what, you know, it's the fabled superconducting network you always wanted, right? I mean, we marvel at the Roman Empire because the Romans had aqueducts. And if you study the aqueducts, you, you're like, how do they move water with gravity 70 miles? They had to have like a, what, one inch per mile or some number of inches, you know, per, per hundreds of meters as a declination. And they had to get it perfect. And they didn't get it perfect. The water wouldn't run. And if the water doesn't run, the city's going to drown in its own toxins. So that's an energy system to bring organic energy to a civilization. And how did they feel about that? They felt, you know, the Romans were engineers. They felt pretty damn committed about that, right? Like, I'm sure they would have murdered you if you tried to sabotage their aqueduct, right? Just like, how should you feel about someone sabotaging the Bitcoin network, right? It's like, it's, it's the same thing. If you... You know, if you go to uh, if you go to an island in the Med, you know, in the modern era there'll be fifty thousand people on the island, but in the Roman era there would have been five thousand or two thousand because the island is is uh, its life support system is constrained by how much water they can capture in the cisterns, right? You can't make water today. We can make water, or we can we can bring in water with energy. If I have enough electricity. I can literally convert seawater into fresh water. But back then, you know, you didn't have that option. So the energy system determines life. So if I look at uh, what does Bitcoin mean? Well, first of all, my observation is technology and it's, it, and it's, a, it's a way to, to take you from a miserable existence to a comfortable or a beautiful existence in the same way that fire and electricity and water, right? I mean, you, you imagine your life in the country with some electricity and some clean water, you know, and, and, and fire and heat, and it's not so bad. And now let's take away those things and give you a hatchet 
you know, and then it, it's not the same romantic notion, right? So, sure. so I think that, uh, first of all, it's that incredibly empowering technology. And if, if antibiotics or electricity took us from life expectancy 50 to life expect, actually, life expectancy 70 by, within 50 years, and I guess now we're like 79, 80, right? All that 20th century technology got us to life expectancy 80. Now we still have this interesting religious philosophical question of how do you spend the extra time if people don't die at age 50 and they live to age 80, what's that mean for families and marriage and, and what does it mean for retirement and politics and, you know, that, those are all issues to be worked out by people in other fields, right? Not mine. That's not my agenda right now. But um, the other... The other key point is you understand Bitcoin is transformational, empowering technology. But the second part of this is, is Bitcoin's not just Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the applications of Bitcoin. And this is where it, it pays to have some humility. Because I think there are a lot of people, a lot of people that discovered Bitcoin, but they understand Bitcoin to be the application of Bitcoin that they understand. And there are a lot of people that understand those applications really, really well. But what they don't understand is the applications of Bitcoin they don't understand, the applications they couldn't conceive of. Just because if Bitcoin is something that the rest of the world couldn't conceive of and you discovered it, well, count yourself lucky. But don't be so arrogant as to assume that there are no other applications that are now enabled by Bitcoin that you can't conceive of that someone else will conceive of or has conceived of, but they don't have the words to explain that to you. There are a lot of things that can't be explained without mathematics. You know, Heinlein, again, my, my favorite author, he's, he's got a lot of phrases in many of his books. He says, well, if you don't explain, if you don't understand n-dimensional spatial, you know, mathematics, I, I can't explain what's what this is to you. There are, arithmetic won't do it. Calculus won't do it. Post PhD mathematics, and I can explain what goes on inside a black hole, but otherwise I can't. You know, if you look at electricity, well, we all think we understand electricity, but do you really understand all the applications of electricity? Because when you get to the applications, electric motors, radio, right? Uh, and then you started to get into magnetic applications and then you get into semiconductors and you get into, into uh, all of the other odd things, you know, like uh, X-rays, right? And MRIs. And pretty soon you get into, into you know, communications and, and, uh, and signal processing and, and the like. And a lot of people that understood the idea of plugging their hairdryer into the wall don't necessarily understand the implications of advanced semiconductors. And so they, I, I think it's a mistake to think you really understand where this is all heading. Because maybe if you were a genius, maybe Tesla understood a lot of it. I mean, he definitely understood quite a bit, but there are a lot of people that wouldn't immediately extrapolate from, uh, from electricity that lights up a light bulb to uh, Netflix, right? <laughs> or YouTube, 
like there's a or zoom or, or stuff like that where we end up heading and i think with bitcoin with bitcoin the, the applications are developing at a rapid rate when you take bitcoin and put it together with square cash app you get a whole range of things that are different and when you put it together with fidelity you get a range of things that are different and when you put it together with microstrategy uh, we created a different set of applications and sometimes sometimes people dismiss the applications as being either threatening like or not orthodox enough like well microstrategy has a stock the stock is a derivative of of uh, bitcoin well do you like it do you hate it well how do you feel about a convertible debt instrument that's a derivative of the stock that's a derivative of bitcoin how do you feel about the options the puts and the calls on it well you if you don't need it like there are a lot of people that don't have $10 billion investment funds to trade securities. Sure. If you don't have $10 billion to trade securities, you don't need that thing. And so you don't appreciate that thing. It's not a solution to your problem. But if you have the problem and you, and you need it, it's a solution to the problem. Now it's an application, which is also transformational. And I think, John, what we're going to see is as governments embrace Bitcoin, and they haven't, you know, El Salvador is the only example of a little bit. But as you start to see cities and states and governments embrace Bitcoin, they're going to do it differently. And sure. you're going to like some of them and you're not going to like other ways, right? It's going to be this orthodoxy thing again. Like, like what, if, what if the Russians decide to embrace it in a roundabout way and, and sure. not the way you want? And I think... Uh, I think you're, you will see it's, it's so decentralized that there are hundreds of thousands of applications of digital energy. And if you understood them all, you would be the smartest human being that ever lived. And even then, it's kind of like impossible because theoretically, if you're a genius and you spend a thousand hours studying this and you had 30 years of experience, you might be able to figure out one of them. Mm. And so what we've really got is this, this uh, decentralized network that's spreading like a virus. And every, every place the virus manifests, it takes on a different form and then it becomes a different aspect of itself to solve a different problem. Right. And you just kind of like got to step back and just, and just let it do its thing, right? As I, opposed I to try to channel it. Sure. And, and that's kind of what I'm getting at. But again, m mine is more on. So I'll use my case. I can't stop thinking about this thing. It's always running on my mind, right? And what it's done, and I've always been an extremely curious person anyways. But what it's done is it's reanimated, it's invigorated, reinvigorated uh, my attempt and desire to understand a lot of disparate domains, even esoteric, seemingly unrelated, whatever, to try to bring those insights back to this thing to help me answer those burning questions that are happening inside. And my, I guess one of my points was that like, I think that's happening to a lot of people and it is causing a fairly dramatic internal restructuring or transformation. And I, you know, so aside from all the different ways that institutions and people will end up integrating this highly, uh, you know, useful and, and, tool that has a lot of diverse applications, what's going on with how this one entity 
and our attempt to understand it is bringing to life meaning in all sorts of other areas. Like what, what do you think is happening here? Just, it's just a massively disruptive force. That's a massive. Well, that goes without saying. Force. Yeah. But, uh, well, I guess that's what's happening. <laughs> like, <laughs> look, mobile phones were a massively disruptive force and they caused everybody to rethink software and electricity was massively disruptive force explosives do, and do guns were a massively disruptive force. So, so uh, it's not the first massively disruptive force. It happens Agreed. to be maybe the biggest massively disruptive force this decade. And maybe this century we'll see if someone comes up with nanobots, right. And they can change the way your body works in real time and morph things and you can live forever. I mean, that'll be another ma massively disruptive force. So it's not the only one, but it's certainly a pretty powerful one right i agree now. do you, do you yeah. think there's any uh validity to the notion that one of the reasons why it's so consuming and so transformative because it's not just a technological advancement but it's one that instantiates itself via certain principles and i i would say uh that two of those perhaps two of the most profound of those is that one is that it propagates incorruptible truth and that instantiates a certain degree of freedom per each individual because now they now have a property right a relation to their the emblem of their time energy and sacrifice i.e money bitcoin that cannot be violated and that's a profound and unprecedented sense sense of freedom and so i'm, I'm sure there are more but when we take something that is successful in the world not just because of its utility but it's actually successful in the world because it highlights, instantiates, amplifies certain really profound principles like truth and freedom. That's why I'm, I keep trying to discern whether this is materially different from any previous disruptive technology because electricity was amazing, right? And that changed the entire world. But with this thing, the, the principles that animate it are so overt that for some reason that causes that's causing me to think that it's materially different than former disruptions, to put it broadly, you know? I guess everybody can, you can have different perspectives on that, right? I mean, the things that pop to mind that would be meta, that would be analogous would be the printing press and the reformation that followed when we had um, the ability to reproduce information and then and then the uh the internet revolution where we could uh disseminate at a billion times more efficiency functionality or, or even more information right i mean this is comparable to that right like if you're if you're interested in truth right when i could publish a book and the book would hold the information for a hundred years and i could give it to ten thousand people that was orders of magnitude better than before. So, mm. so you could almost say that if you look at human civilization, it, it seems to me that humans have probably lived on this earth as intelligent creatures for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, but we only seem to remember the last few thousand years, <laughs> right? We don't really have very good records, you know, of, of, AD or BC 10,000 
and between 10,000 and 250,000 is like we know next to nothing. And we tend to underestimate what happened because we don't have a record. So the memory of the civilization uh, in general, it kind of formed with the, you know, discoveries like paper, right? Coming up with a, a way to print. We had some, we had very expensive parchment and eventually we found a way to drive down the cost. And the printing press plus the ability to print on a cheaper material was a pretty big deal. I think, uh, I think the internet allowed us to give that book to a billion people for free. And uh, that's a pretty big deal, right? I, sure. I marvel, I mean, even in the past 24 hours, right? The, the explosion of knowledge, like I could go and I could do a, I could do a speech and 200,000 people might see it now or a million. But if you roll the clock back to 2018, the conventional approach would be I retire from business, I go to a university, and I teach 100 or 200 students a semester for 10 years. And maybe I teach 400 people 10 years in a row. So maybe I would have taught 4,000 people in the entire rest of my life one thing. And now you teach 4,000 people in 15 minutes, you know, every day. So mm -hmm. So I, I feel like the human race is getting more efficient. Bitcoin is, is the ability to move energy around a million times more efficiently. But the internet era was the ability to move information around a million times more efficiently. Is energy more important than information? Remember, energy is conservative. Right. The you have to solve the double spin problem for it to be energy. If you don't solve the double spin problem, it's information. And so these are two, I would say the two dramatic revolutions of our lifetime, right, are, are digital information and digital energy. And uh, they both are pretty profound. Which one is more profound? I, I guess we think digital energy is more profound, but digital energy combines with digital information. There are a lot of things we have right now that are corrupted because of the lack of digital information. For example, Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Instagram, all of these social media uh, outlets, they're corrupted. They're corrupted by toxicity. They're corrupted by uh, malignant behavior. They're corrupted by scammers. They're corrupted by criminals. They're corrupted by by garbage, all sorts of things. I can't read my DMs because I have 10,000 DMs that are from bots. Yeah. I have yeah. 5,000. Lots of Asian girls hitting you up lately. Yeah, Eastern European <laughs> hooker bots, you know, in, in some of my certain platforms remain nameless. You can't trust anything. And that's because there is no true energy cost to uh, a malicious attack or yeah. maliciousness in cyberspace. So cyberspace was created or enabled <clears throat> with uh, digital information and that first digital revolution. But the second wave of digital energy is, what we, is how you clean it up and also how you give substance to it, right? If you, if you wanna create, you know, you have a building in second life 
but it has no real substance. And the metaverse has no substance in the absence of digital energy. Um, maybe I can buy an entire, you know, skyscraper for a nickel. There's no substance. But if I introduce digital energy in the form of um, uh, Bitcoin, you know, uh, some kind of digital asset on a lightning rail, then I could have a building with a $10 million uh, asset value in cyberspace. And the practical application of that would be like on YouTube, if you simply said, everyone's got to post, if, if you're going to do a big, you know, a giveaway of Bitcoin or ETH, you got to post a million dollars. And if it turns out you're a scammer, you lose the million dollars worth of Bitcoin. If you actually had edifices in cyberspace that had real energy behind them, you could trust them. And if you could trust them, 99% of the malicious behavior would disappear. There'd be consequences. And then there would be safety and security and civility. And, and that would accelerate commerce, accelerate uh, and enable commerce. So I do think we've got a renaissance. If you're, lo you're looking for the word renaissance, are we driving one? Yeah. Uh, Look, there was a, you know, Martin Luther had some impact and, and people would say, you know, the, the, the quest for truth, you know, also has Galileo and Newton and Leibniz, you know, and, and Marie Curie to thank, right? Because they either sacrificed their life or devoted their life to putting something that was truthful and beautiful and, and many people trace you know, the, the foundation of the modern civilization to the rise of mathematics and literature. And we couldn't have had either of them without books and, and without, uh, without the free flow of information. And I suppose that, look, uh, you, you study the history of Genghis Khan, right? And the general modus operandi was the horde rides into the city. They line up every educated person. They murder them all. They, they burn every book, you know, they destroy everything of anything that has information in it, and they just keep the peasants, and uh, they wiped out hundreds of years of history. So there was uh, a set of ideologies that were anti-intellectual in the extreme. You could even look at some of the impact of the Cultural Revolution, you know, and there's, there are or things that happen under Paul Pot, where we, we see examples where we just murder every single educated person. Can you write? Right? There was a time when the church wouldn't let you learn to read, right? Or, or wouldn't, you know, or we or we're not going to record information in English, the common tongue. We're going to record it in Latin. So I so I think that that humanity has it has struggled toward the quest of truth. And, uh, and every scientific advance or, or you know, intellectual advance has been a step in that direction. I think the internet was an important step in that direction. Look, the, uh, the, ability, uh, the ability for you to go online and take a 12 hour course for free, right? It's a pretty big advance. I can watch your podcast for free. I can go take Bitcoin for everybody for free. Okay, roll the clock back pre-YouTube. Couldn't really do it. and. Post Zoom, the cost to originate content decreased by two orders of magnitude post COVID. It's, right, so that's an important revolution. 
if uh, if you look at how many people all of a sudden engage in these podcasts, it used to be people could go into a studio and record something and upload it, but it was so much more expensive to do it. So I think um, I think we have information spreading. I think there's a struggle. There's a struggle over controlling that information, right? Some stuff, some information is spreading that shouldn't, like for example, scammers on YouTube and malicious bots. There's a lot of information that spreads through cyberspace that really is malicious. And then there's a lot of information that gets stopped by the platforms that's virtuous. And we could give examples of that, but I won't because I don't want us to get stopped, right? <laughs> so, oh, so, uh, so you have like both sides of the coin and what that tells you is we've got a great powerful technology, but it has been imperfectly harnessed by human beings. But you know, this is not the first technology that's imperfectly harnessed by human beings. I wax philosophical about electricity, but we've also got the electric chair. Mm. I saw not all electricity is used as a force of good and people can't all, people are still fighting to this day, whether the electric chair is ethical or unethical. And we won't solve that probably for another thousand years. So guns, germs, and steel are twisted, right? Radio can be used as a force of propaganda. Books can be burned. Books can be forces of good. And people print stuff that, you know, you think Mein Kampf was printed. You know, some people didn't agree with that. And so I think that um, technology is going to move forward. It's going to be two steps forward, one step backwards. Digital energy is going to make the world on the margin better, but it's not going to solve the misuse of energy. Right? Yeah. Kinetic energy can be used to defend you or it can be used to hurt you. And, uh, you know, I, you know, we could get into this interesting debate about would we be better off without this power? You want to roll back explosives or guns or, you know, or nuclear weapons or automobiles or oil or fill in the blank. I, I, as a historian of science, my view is we're better off today and I don't want to live in 1900 and I don't want to live in 1800 and I don't want to go back to the revolutionary war in the good old days when the life expectancy was 32. I don't want to go back to the Roman empire where rich Romans lived to age 72, but 90, 5% of the population was either slave or a wage slave peasant laborer living in squalor. That's not my goal. So yeah, I mean, everything is double-edged, right? Every power can be used for, for good or evil. Um, and I think part of the reason why truth permeate this vein of truth permeates this system and the people that end up interacting with it, because it instantiates its own truth through actual sacrifice through actual work. And I would say in, in fiat world, we've so much of the truth has been, uh, you know, withheld from emerging because the consequences of action are not properly instantiated in the sacrifice required to take them. And, you know, so I think that's why a lot of us are excited that this form of truth in Bitcoin that helps orient and structure and, and order everything else, because finding truth is a messy process, right? It's not just as easy as in a market, you know, a market discovers truth by people trying and failing and trying and failing and competing with one another until a truth emerges. And you need that mechanism that is the instantiation of truth to properly allow for that process to take place. 
And so I think that's why the, the ethic of truth rises through this thing and is being imbued in the people that interact with it because it is so fundamental to the value that the value proposition that it represents. Yeah, I, I think that uh, is, a, is a beautiful sentiment. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I but... think it's well, it's well said. But I, I would make the observation that, again, you're back to is this, a, is this an ideology? Or is this a technology? So there's a truth in chemistry. And it can be used to manufacture explosives. And there's a truth in electricity, and it can be used as a force of good, but can also be used as a force of ill, mm -hmm. right? And there's a truth in metallurgy, and you make steel with it. But but Stalin, I think I think the word Stalin means steel in his language, right? Um, bad people use steel as well as good people, and you can build a bridge with it. But there are bridges that lead to concentration camps, and people use those too. Right. And uh, and mathematics, right? What what Newton gave us was a proper mathematics. What he realized is that arithmetic didn't properly describe the forces on a bridge or the forces, you know, that are at work in engineering. And so if you wanted to build something that wasn't going to shake itself apart, you needed like calculus of variations and you need advanced differential equations. And so it's truth. Uh, and uh, there is truth in science, uh, and that and that truth results in applications. And you will be able to build many beautiful applications, and you will build cars with that truth. But you will also build tanks with that truth. Right. And you will build airplanes to take us to see our friends. And you will also build fighter jets that murder someone that you either like or don't like that should or should not be murdered. And so I, I think that Bitcoin is simply the next technology and it's a big advance, I, maybe as a pragmatic, a pragmatic thinker, I, if I take the pragmatic point of view, I would say it's more like guns, germs and steel and, and explosives. And if you adopt it, your life will be better because if you don't adopt it, someone else will make your life worse. But after you adopt it, if, you're, if your religion is to murder everybody that you disagree with, then new technology isn't going to change your religion. And if your government is imperfect, better technology is not going to make it perfect. It will make it better. If I build a you know, biblical reference, don't build your city on sinking sand. If I build Manhattan on sinking sand, well, Manhattan would have a much higher maintenance cost. It would generally collapse. And if you look at, if you look at cities that were built on swamps, right, with poor foundations, uh, they normally don't last. They don't persist. Manhattan lasts because it happens to be geographically at the center of a bunch of rivers. I mean, the Hudson River is one of the really great river networks of the United States. And also it's on granite. And so they made a pretty good choice for where they built it. And then the part of it they built was steel with good engineering. It lasts a long time. But there are people in those buildings that started companies that went out of business. Madoff worked in one of those buildings, right? There, there are corrupt businesses in those buildings. There are things that didn't work. 
there are things that did work and there are politics that you may not agree with in that city. And if I could roll the clock back, would I put New York City where I put it or where it is? Yeah, I would still put it there. Would I buy it for a bunch of glass beads? Yeah, the glass wasn't that, if, if you consider what was more valuable, the glass or the granite, the granite was more valuable. Now, maybe that's just an apocryphal story. It didn't happen. Maybe, maybe the Europeans just took New York and then they handed over some glass beads after they took it anyway. But if they took it, they took it with gunpowder, right? And they took it with technology because they could channel energy better. And that's what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is energy. Yeah, it's going to make your life better. It's going to make any civilization or any, any country or government better. It's going to make any company better. But you're still going to have the moral and the ethical political questions, which is now that you have infinite power, how do you choose to use it, John? I give you infinite money. How it's are you going to spend it? a question for you. Yeah, I know, I, mean, I know what you're getting at, but you know, you've been stacking a lot of corn. So that's, that's going to be a question increasingly relevant for future Michael Saylor. My, and my view on this is we make Bitcoin successful in any means, any way we can make it successful, you know, uh, consistent with the, the opportunities we have, right? We work within the system we have. If, if the system wants to trade securities, we trade securities to make Bitcoin stronger. If the system wants, to, it wants debt, you may not want to own debt, but I would issue debt in order to buy Bitcoin with it. And, um, and as Bitcoin gets stronger, everybody else in the network that has different values, right? We're all brothers in this regard or sisters. We are all brothers and sisters in that we all chose Bitcoin, right? As, as our store of value or as our ethical, moral, philosophical center, right? Bitcoin, if you put all your energy into the Bitcoin network, your life energy, your life force, that makes us all related, right? In that why, way. Why is it the moral ethical center? I just, this, because this is what we're talking about, right? Any technology, you know, it's kind of like that Solzhenitsyn quote, like, you know, good and evil runs down the heart of each person. So you can fall on either side of a technology, but does Bitcoin promote or emit more of one side of that effort? Like, is there a morality instantiated in Bitcoin because of what it represents? If I take all that the human race is, and I convert the human race to pure energy, right? Energy is matter, matter is energy. If I converted the entire human race to energy, which we could also call capital, capital is energy, then I have to choose where to store it. Do I store it in land? Do I store it in gold? Do I store it in US dollars? Do I store it in diamonds? Do I store it on a ledger that runs on a computer in the basement of the Fed? Where do I store that energy, right? Everybody in the Bitcoin network has made the decision to store their liquid energy, or at least they've made, they made a decision to store some amount of energy in the Bitcoin network. That's what makes them part of the same family. Some people have gone all in. Some people have stored 100% of their energy. Some people have gone beyond that. Some people have, have borrowed money, right? They've stored 200% of their energy. Not only have they stored everything, but they've stored enough so that should Bitcoin actually go to zero, they will be, they will be bankrupt and destroyed. Or 
they pledge their family house, right? Bitcoin, maybe I mortgaged the family house, or maybe I pledged my company, or maybe I pledged my country. Some people have bet family or property or other things uh, on the Bitcoin system because they're 250% committed, right? Some people are 5% committed. So everyone in the Bitcoin system shares that commitment. And the, and the belief is that this is uh, a true and a virtuous, uh, a true and virtuous method by which to store their life's energy. And in that way, they have a certain, uh, a certain uh, moral common ground, right? Because if you're if everything that your family owns is stored in Bitcoin, and then you're trusting the future of your family to Bitcoin, then clearly, to the extent that your family is a virtuous, uh, a virtuous endeavor, right, then Bitcoin is the energetic instantiation of that virtue. Right. So, and also the, the way it's expressed, right? So energy is a means, and your own ethics and morality determine the ends that those means will be devoted to. And so I'm where wondering- I, Where I go to there though, is the point is everybody's got one, they, they've got an energy uh, consensus. We all have a common energy ideology or common energy technology. We've all chosen mm -hmm. the same technology or ideology to store our energy. But beyond that, everybody's different. Yeah. So, yeah. so there are some people that are, that have one religion. There are, there are some people that have one ideology. Some, some are vegetarian, some are carnivores, some are Muslim, some are Catholic, some are, you know, this country, that country. Yeah. It's quite likely that they all have differences with regard to those ideologies. And at the same time, they can all share a common ideology with regard to energy. Yeah. And that, and that, that's fine. And I think that. Well, that's great. It's incredibly unifying. That's if there's two so people, important. right? Look, even within a family, everybody in a family doesn't have the same values, right? Sure, sure. Right. A husband and wife don't have the same values, right? If you, you don't have this, you don't even have the same values with yourself, John, over time. Right. I mean, the, the, Newton's brilliance was, you know, calculus of variations and different differential equations and the idea that how do you calculate something when the rate of it is changing continuously? The acceleration, the jerk, etc. So right. what if you were changing, if your values are changing continuously based upon your life experiences? And I can change them, by the way, like I can I can put you in an auto accident and I can I can hand you an opioid and you will wake up addicted to an opioid. And now your values have changed and it's a chemical addiction and these things work. Yeah. OK, so you may think you may think, oh, I will never, ever take a drug and then you will have an auto accident and then you will be taking a drug and you'll realize that your choice is screaming pain or take the drug. And now what you think is different. So if everybody in the human race has evolving values based upon their life experience and their health and circumstances, then it's unrealistic to think that we're going to solve all those issues or have a common set of values because of a technology like Bitcoin. 
what is realistic is to think that Bitcoin can emerge as a primary digital energy network. Of, you know, you could call it a religion of energy, and and it may not be the only one. Right there, there may be. I mean, obviously, there are other religions of energy. There, are, I mean, there are people that that feel pretty passionately about certain other stores of value. Right, there are some that will take them to their death. Right, like you don't think you're going to change Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger's views on Bitcoin in the next decade. Mm -hmm. So, you're you're not going to change everybody. I, what, I guess what, what I, we've done is we've created a technology which is also an ideology that is more powerful. What you might say, John, if you wanted to, which I, I would probably agree with, is maybe, and maybe what, this is what you're getting at. This is probably the first technology in the history of humanity that catalyzed a religion or an ideology. Like, I, I don't think that. Like the internet didn't necessarily make people more committed to their religion or make more committed to their ideology. It spreads it or it undermines it. But, but it, I, I don't know that anybody really formed an ideology uh, around other technologies. Right. It's like not that clear to me. I, you, I mean, you could say uh, the entire modern industrial era, the, the, the industrialism, the, the idea of, of, of capitalism might have been catalyzed by manufacturing. And yeah, the advances of steel and oil and electricity certainly made a lot of believers in the 19th century and the early 20th century, right? It created uh, the, the, this American ethos of the, the belief that, that uh, commerce and business was going to further the interest of the human race to the benefit of our fellow, fellow human beings. Yeah, sure. I, I think this one, though, has a fundamentally more intimate relationship with the individual, with their energy, with their time in particular, and that it, it kind of, it does have that more, it, it sanctifies more the individual, and it introduced for the first time the notion of an absolute or that, that mimics the absoluteness of our experience of time, let's say. And I've heard you say, you know, often if you want to send 100,000 or a million bucks through 100 years, you know, what's the best vehicle? And it winds up being Bitcoin because everything else deteriorates or dilutes or is susceptible to confiscation or what have you. And so what happens to your, you know, our consciousness includes the past, the present and the future. What happens when how we relate to the future through the emblem of our sacrifices, which is our money, now extends as far out into the future as, as we can basically imagine? How does that change your level of anxiety about the future, the security you feel, how you pass your values through the future and through time? But through what I was getting at with that question is like, I find it interesting that because of that change, this is a discussion that's being had amongst a lot of the Bitcoiners that at least I've been speaking with, which is, okay, in the future, we're going to have additional power, let's say. We're going to have a, a greater ability to express our will and values and morality out into the world. And so as a result of that increased level of power, what should be the values that dictate and determine our behavior? And this is the, the ongoing discussion that's happening and why it, 
it shifts into the religious territory, why it shifts into the philosophical, why it shifts into the pragmatic and the evolutionary, because these are all questions that for whatever reason, whatever process underlies this phenomenon we're engaging with is causing those things to bubble up. And I, you know, I might, might be, you could say, well, it's just you, John, you're just that type of person. But I, I see it common, consistently enough in people that are deep in the weeds in Bitcoin that I, it lends, leads me to believe that it's not an isolated phenomenon. So it's interesting to explore why that may be the case. And, and the question for you in particular was, has that happened with you? And because the, the degree of expressing your will and values out into the world is going to be so great because of your, your massive stack, have, has that caused you to consider, refine, evaluate your own value systems and what you actually ultimately want to act, uh, accomplish or express out into the world, either during or after your, your own life? I mean, another way to say it is, is Bitcoin stretching out your time horizon. Um, but so I, I understand what you're saying. I get it. I agree with it. Bitcoin is technology to allow the individual to transcend time and space and maybe time, space and jurisdiction. Like uh, before Bitcoin, if you thought that you couldn't, uh, you nobody would have thought that they could do something for a thousand years. Bitcoin, right. you're not going to live forever. The closest thing to immortality you're going to get is Bitcoin. So you may not live forever, but your money could live forever, right? People, the equivalent to Bitcoin, right, for biology would be if we found a way to make ourselves live forever. We found the fountain of youth. And that would be a twisty thing, right? That's a science fiction thing. If I could upload my consciousness into a robot or, or if I could just find a way to continually replenish myself and, and eliminate the, uh, the breakdown of the human body, eliminate, stop, it's really stopping aging. If I could stop aging, you've achieved immortality, people would start to think different, right? But if you've achieved immortality of your energy or your money, you could think different. And I would say before Bitcoin, if you're living in uh, Argentina or you're living in, um, in um, Venezuela, you know, you've got some money. Can you get it out of the country? No, it's hopeless. You can't transcend, you can't transcend the jurisdiction. You can't transcend space. You're trapped. All you can do is buy property in the jurisdiction you're in. And so if a dictator and, you know, controls Zimbabwe, and you're trapped in Zimbabwe, they're going to take your property, right? It becomes double hopeless. Now you have to flee. So before Bitcoin, you would have had to literally flee the country and, and you would be devoid of all hope there in, in space. But also nobody could figure out how to solve the problem in time. And after Bitcoin, we have a solution to take your life force, which we call capital, which we call money, which we call energy, your energy. We have a solution to convert it and put it on a network which where, where it transcends political jurisdiction and it transcends spatial limitation and it transcends temporal limitation. So if you want the definition of expanded consciousness, Renaissance, right? Mind blown. 
Well, the mind blown is, John, you can live anywhere and nowhere and you can live forever. Okay, you can express your sentiment as long as you wish anywhere forever. And you're no longer constrained by the local political sentiments. So I, a lot of people don't even bother to think about those things, right? If you're, you know, if you're born in prison and you know you'll spend your life in prison and you never get out of prison and the extent of rich is you're allowed, you know, a mirror in your cell and the extent of poor is you get two meals a week instead of one meal a day, what, you know, that's your life, right? Those are your circumstances. So when I free you from those constraints, and I think, I think people that are hardcore Bitcoiners, what they've realized is that they really can't achieve self-sovereignty by taking personal custody. And, they, and if, it, if you dismiss the banks, now you're, no, you're outside the political jurisdictions. And that gives you a new hope. And if you dismiss the fiat currency, you, you know, you've defeated time and between defeating time and defeating space and defeating politics, then now you have an entire world at your fingertips. And the, the phrase that pops to mind, John, is um, slip the surly bonds. If you look at the history of flight, the famous poem, it's an Air Force poem, I've slipped the surly bonds, right? And I've uh, seen the face of God, right? <laughs> Right, uh, and uh, it was a sentiment that early aviators had, and you can understand why they had it. Right, I get in an airplane, you know, and I fly mm -hmm. up in the air, and I'm free. The phrase "free as a bird" or "free bird," right, mm -hmm. uh, or the like. And and uh, why did John Gwynn, you know, want to go to space? You know, why was an astronauts to the moon? It's this sense of freedom, transcendence. So I, I do think that if you've got a transcendent technology, now your, your envelope of possibilities expands. And when your envelope of possibilities expands, you're invited to consider how you will use that power. Yep, exactly. Uh, most people are, you know, as we say, most people are poor because the political system is robbing them of their energy all the time. But they're being bled to death, but they don't know they're being bled to death. Like I, I experienced that at MicroStrategy for 10 years where we had all this cash, but the money supply is expanding at 8% a year and we're getting one or 2% interest. So we're losing 6%. So we're losing all this money every year and we can't get ahead no matter what we do. But I don't know why. I know there's something wrong. It's a nagging thing. Like it shouldn't be like this, but it is. But it's if if I sneak into your room every night and I extract a bunch of blood from you, but you don't know you've been bled, but you wake up every day and you feel tired. It's like anemic, right? That, I mean, that happens with diseases, right? If you, mm -hmm. there are certain diseases where they're just grab they're they're stealing the oxygen from your red blood cells and you're anemic and you don't know why, or there's a, there's a lingering allergy and you're allergic to mold and you don't know why. All you know is that you just, or Lyme's disease, another example, it's a disease. So if you ever get well and you, and you don't have that disease, 
Now you're empowered. And if you're empowered, well, if, on the day you get up and you can fly, John, now you have a much more complicated set of decisions to make. You can fly. Where do you go? Okay, I'm going to make it better. You can fly at the speed of light. Now you can go anywhere. Now it's, by the way, now I've, have I introduced joy or anxiety, right? Are you empowered or are you, are you uh, bothered by yeah. this thing? And maybe, you know, one of the points you're getting at is in a, in a Bitcoin world where people are empowered, they really are invited to consider all of these philosophical choices but they're also forced to. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, character is destiny. with potential. It's always that anxiety. Potential can be, you can extract extremely good things from it, or it can consume you with the anxiety of the chaos that it, that houses that potential. It's like, you know, the family that wins the sweepstakes and now you're rich. And so do you just blow right. it all, you know, or do you invest it, you know, in something that's beautiful? So do you, do you have thoughts on that? Because I know, you, you know, you're the company and sailor.org, you're passionate about education, but you know, at the, at some point in future, when you have 1% of the Bitcoin supply or whatever the, the ultimate number ends up being, and you have the expansion of that envelope is encompasses all of that potential action that you may then take because of that. Have you given yeah, thought I, to, to what I have, you, you will do with that? I have three agendas my first agenda is to make sure microstrategy the software itself reaches its full potential because we've got thousands and thousands of customers and millions of users that use our software and i've got 2000 employees and i want it to reach its full potential so so use my resources and energy to make sure that happens the second um <clears throat> to make sure bitcoin reaches its full potential and as you can imagine, that's an infinite task, right? You could, you could go on a, a different podcast every day forever or every hour of the day forever. There's billions of people to reach. There's tens of thousands of different products or service ideas and things to be done. There are challenges daily. There are opportunities. So this will never end. And simply acquiring more Bitcoin uh, is a way to make the network more successful, but also educating the world is a way to make it more successful and then defending its integrity is a way to make it more successful. So, so that's, a, that's a big task. I mean, that would be worthy of a lifetime of work. And uh, my third, my, you know, my uh, avocation or my charitable interest is free education. So, I mean, I have, a, I have a charitable foundation and, and uh, we support various things and there are different things from time to time that are, that are um, needful, that deserve support, that I do support. But the strategic thing that my, fo my focus is on is creating a free university in cyberspace so that billions of people can learn anything for free and funding it forever. It's like, like what, why should anybody have to, have to pay a nickel to get a computer science degree, a master's, an undergraduate, a PhD, a chemistry? Yeah, and if you can teach it 
in cyberspace and I, I, maybe we won't do ballet right we won't there are some things that, that won't be first on our list but but mathematics obviously you can learn mathematics in cyberspace and you can learn computer science in cyberspace and a lot of forms of engineering sometimes they require a, a lab but you can create simulations and you can teach them I don't see any reason why you can't make that free for everybody. And we've got, we've got more than a million students, but I'd like to have more than a billion students. And we've got courses, but I'd like to have them all. You know, like I, I joke with you, like how much of the Bitcoin do you want? Oh, I want it all. Well, how, I'm not gonna get it all. I mean, if I work my entire life, I might work my way up to 1% or one and a half percent or something. If I get very lucky and I'm very diligent and the wind blows in the right direction, but but if I do, and if I, if I end up buying $100 billion of this stuff, then there'll be something like $99.9 trillion of Bitcoin for everybody else, you see? <laughs> some, some crazy thing, right? You're just going to drive up the, the, the value of it uh, in an insane amount. So... Um, so it, that's worth doing, but it's ultimately an egalitarian thing. Bitcoin is an egalitarian energy network. And on the Sailor Academy side, it'll become Sailor University and just a general university. And if, if we ever get to the point where we can offer every undergraduate degree, every graduate degree, and every PhD degree, then maybe it'll expand. But that depends. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. People like Khan Academy and others do a really good job of K through 12 and um, I'm just trying to do something which is a unique contribution. And in the greatest scheme of things, I, th I think that if you roll the clock forward a thousand years and you look at the human race, it's pretty clear that availability of free education for everybody is probably going to be a useful thing. I don't think it's going to obsolesce. Maybe the bricks and mortar institutions will obsolete and maybe the courses will evolve and change and the way that we teach will evolve. But, but you're going to start with human beings coming out of the womb and you're going to want to convert them into, into thinkers. And I've said before in other, other podcasts, I think if you want to advance the human race, we need more PhDs. Uh, we've got about 10 million PhDs. We need po people with postgraduate education and I, I don't see any reason why a billion people couldn't be. Certainly, 100 million, 500 million, they have the genetic potential uh, or the will to do that. They just don't have the money. It's too expensive. If you're going to convince, if you're going to do fusion and faster than light drive and cure cancer and solve, you know, the problem politics and solve war and solve all these medical issues then you're going to need more than a high school education. You're going, to need, you're going to need more than even a college undergraduate education. You, just, you don't have the techniques necessary to deal with the, the complex physical issues or medical issues or chemical issues uh, that, that pop up when you're trying to advance things. And I'd like to see a future where there are cars that levitate, that move faster than the speed of sound or at the speed of sound powered by powered by a fusion reactor that has this much water in it that will last 27 years right right it'd be nice yeah, that'd be pretty cool and it'll take effort to do it so it's not complicated strategy john it's like make bitcoin successful provide free education to the world 
it, and I, I come back to the laser focus. I think most people, most people fail because they have six good ideas and they think that they can pursue all six and, and you can't pursue all six, right? Oftentimes, maybe you can do one or two, or I mean, like when you get past the fingers on one hand, you're dilutive and every other battle you choose to fight and, and the like, it just slows you down. And by the time you get reasonably diluted, you're 1% as effective or 0.1% as effective. So I really think you got to focus. Yeah. You know, man. Also, people declare victory too soon. They're like, they think, oh, I did this, so I'm done. Well, no, you're not done. You've accomplished 1% of what you think you need to accomplish when you're done. You've got 100x more to do. Right. People just declare victory. They're overconfident and they underestimate the amount of energy it's going to take to do even one thing well. And they and they they think because because they can do 10 things decently, they should. But the stoic philosophy here holds and it's just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should do the thing. Mm. And the true mark of maturity is you could do 100 things you choose to do one thing and perhaps one thing at the family level you have a family life and then one thing at the professional level i think you can have like a professional uh, a vocation an avocation and maybe you can have a friends and family thing but you really need to focus upon that right because as yeah. soon as you start thinking that you're that gifted human being that can somehow juggle three things or five things you know, Julius Caesar was gifted. He, I think they said he could like dictate in seven different languages simultaneously. He still got his ass handed to him in Egypt. And ultimately he got murdered by his best friends. Okay, so, so you know, and Napoleon was thought to be quite the genius too. And, and he whiffed twice. The world's full of people that were geniuses and they were hyper successful and they implode spectacularly generally because they get to this point of success and then someone strokes their ego and they decide they're going to have to go fix four more things. Well, man, it makes me extremely hopeful that you're focused on something like education and using your resources and the technologies that are now available to bring it to so many people. And I, I do wonder, like, both from a, the point that we mentioned about Bitcoiners feeling, Bitcoin instilling a sense of security about oneself and their future, and making them available to be charitable, to, to be able to think outside of themselves. And I, I do think that's a hallmark of how Bitcoin changes your relation to your stored energy, both the spatio-temporal relationship of your stored energy. I think that gives you more security to think outside yourself. And then perhaps there's also an element of it, this whole thing being a gift to the world. You know, Satoshi having gifted it to the world and all of his coins never having moved, perhaps it, that instills an ethos of, of charity throughout the whole thing, but it is something that I've noticed and you know, and in recent months I've been traveling around and speaking with a lot of Bitcoiners and you know, people want to stack as many sats as they can, but there's also this sense that, you know, once you're taken care of and you and your family are taken care of, there seems to be a desire to push that out into the world to try to ameliorate some of the, the challenges that we're all facing. And how great is that? I mean, because we're all going to have if we're all right about this, uh, we're all going to have increasing powers to do so, you know, so I think it's, it's, it's awesome.
It's the best reason to try to accumulate energy so that you can actually make the world a better place. Yeah. Amen. I think uh, there's this, uh, this acid test inversion, which is, which is, uh, you know, you cross the chasm when you start thinking in terms of, I'm going to convert my analog energy or my physical energy into digital energy, and I'm going to store it forever. And then I'm going to fund my expenses and fund my charitable interest with the yield on the energy. Like it, the gold people never figured it out with gold. They somehow have to mine the gold, convert it into dollars, and then they don't hold the gold. So their, their balance sheet is continually collapsing. So a conventional business, it has a balance sheet of cash and credit and it's collapsing. A conventional family is collapsing. When you flip to a digital balance sheet, then your balance sheet starts accreting like the MicroStrategy balance sheet. It was 500 million or 250 million, then 500 million, then a billion, then 2 million, then 4 billion, now 7 billion, right? When you flip to a balance sheet that is accreting, then you realize that all the, you organize your life so that everything else can be done even off of the interest or the yield on the balance sheet. So if you, if you figure that out, I mean, to do it well, you either have to have a job where you generate income. So you're, you're just generating income in fiat and you stack and your, your stack just accumulates, or you have to establish a relationship with a banker that will give you a, a loan against the Bitcoin and fund in the fiat. But once you've, you've crossed that chasm, it's a very bright line, right? You've flipped from, from uh, a position where my balance sheet is my, primarily invested in assets that are deteriorating at a faster rate than the money supply is expanding, or, or they're, they're growing at a slower rate than the money supply is expanding. You've either got that situation or you flip to the other situation where my balance sheet is accreting at a faster rate than the then the supply of money is expanding. And when you hit that inflection point, you see that when you're before that inflection point, if I give you any amount of money and it's, and it's not growing faster than the money supply, you can draw a line and you have um, a terminal point on the line where you run out of money. Mm -hmm. And when you flip, you become immortal. And so, so uh, it's really this quest for immortality where if you're living in fear and you're saving in dollars, you've got a life expectancy of four years or two years or 14 years, right? Some, when are you going to run out? And when you flip it, your life expectancy is, is infinite when you, or your, your energy expectancy is like now, now the energy is going to outlast my organic frame. In fact, my money will live beyond me. And now you're like, and John, maybe this is a, an interesting place where you get to religion and morality, because if your money's going to outlive you, you start thinking about children, right? You start thinking about, I got to be married. I should have children. I got, I start thinking about my children. And then you start thinking, I better make sure that my kids aren't spoiled. I better make sure they're well-educated. I better protect them because I don't want to spoil a kid with a lot of money you know, that that's going to squander it. And then you start thinking, oh, that park in my my neighborhood, I think I'm going to endow that and I'm going to keep that park. Or I, and then I start thinking, well, I got to fix my country because my kids are going to live in it. 
and so when you when you feel like your energy will go on your time horizon goes beyond this horizon be you know there is no horizons beyond that's another famous Heinlein book by the way beyond this horizon good book i gotta check check out Heinlein after this uh, you'll I see guess. you'll see over the horizon and then you know it's it's probably good that you're going to die because if you know you're going to die you think well i better actually put my energy into institutions and my family or people around me so that they'll live on and they'll express my values and maybe they'll remember me right and mm -hmm. what i did for them mm -hmm. if i told you i'm going to give you bitcoin and you can live forever you know, you might almost become too inwardly focused. You become like yeah. that insane, immortal God that only thinks of themselves, and you just generally go insane. So I don't know about that one. I'm not sure. I'm not ready to grapple with that. That's a philosophical, right. metaphysical thing. But what so I do maybe, think... Maybe it's advantageous that the organic body dies, but an element of the values, the will, the morality is able to persist onward because it means that it becomes more imbued into the world becomes more actualized in the world something and, like and that. you know where this is expressed in the last thousand years it was in the writing of a book so if you were if you lived right. 500 years if you're charles dickens or you know if, if you're any of the great writers uh you know they would sit down and they have something to say they write a book voltaire and they gave it to the world and you get this the poignant sense that right they were writing to future generations and then you're leaping across the years you know to to get their wisdom so it used to be the way that you could immortalize yourself your ego your sentiment your life experiences was to write the book vita vita vici right even caesar wrote the book right mm -hmm. they wanted to leave that well so now with bitcoin you can leave you can leave the book but you can also leave more than the book i mean you can leave you could leave you're gonna leave these podcasts so i mean maybe ten thousand years from now people are gonna look at john vallis and try to figure out what was going on at the advent of the bitcoin era <laughs> right and they'll be looking at you and so uh, say hi to people ten thousand years <laughs> from now john you know we miss you guys don't screw it up you know and uh <laughs> And it, it boils down to just this last phrase, right? Bitcoin is hope, mm. right? Bitcoin is hope. Now you have hope. You can see beyond the horizon. And now that you have hope, you've got to figure out what you're going to do with your life and what you're going to do with your life energy because someone gave you back the option. And before Bitcoin, we took it away from you. And if we take away you know, the, the option, then life is hopeless. So lucky us, lucky yeah, us, we exactly. have hope. Well, Mike, that's a, a perfect place to put a pin in this one. Did you have any last words or anything before we shut it down? No, I think I said them. <laughs> All right, man. Well, look, I, as always, I appreciate the time. It's, it's great to catch up. And uh, I look forward to another chat uh, in Miami around the conference time. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you, All right, John. Brother. Take care.
Flip side, um.